This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Paul Muadib. Hi, I'm Marissa. I'm Will. And we're going to talk about Dune, book two. Um, this is the second half, uh, second third of the first and only Dune novel. Uh, Frank <laughs> Herbert. Um, I am a big fan of this book. We have done a show on book one. And uh, I don't know. I think book one is better than book two. Book two is pretty damn good. I was trying to think, what's the worst part of this book? Um, and I thought, okay, you know that scene where where um, uh, Liet Kynes is, I don't know, exposed in the desert and he keeps grabbing sand and talking to his dad? I think that, that was the least good scene. That's what? a good scene. It's I a love good that scene. scene. It's a good scene. <laughs> it's a good scene. It's one of my favorite scenes. I, I think it's a very good scene. But, uh, you know, if we're looking for truth, we have to look at what being critical. And I thought that scene went a little long, and it kind of felt like um, this was Frank Herbert giving us, like, more philosophy uh, just at his – at his because uh, he built he, – I put so much work into this. <laughs> he needed to have – It is info dumping. He was yeah, info dumping. he originally write – the story about Kynes, though, wasn't he? That's like, right, yeah. Originally, so pr- it was Kynes adapting the ecology of Dune and changing mm-hmm. it. And I think this was the last chunk that sort of survived from the initial... Yeah, so maybe it was his darling, and he just he couldn't I, have I, let this book go without that. He couldn't murder it. He had yeah. to give it a mercy half-smothering, and that's, what, that's why it felt so, like, not as amazingly stellar like if you were going to go through and you say okay you have to chop something that would be the part i chop not because it's terrible it's not terrible at all it 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 is slightly long there's a lot of sand grasping um there's a lot of sort of saying the same thing over and getting annoyed at his dad i don't think that that's a wise move there Um, but what i like about that mm -hmm. scene is I think even when I read it the first time, I was just because it goes on so long. Yes, it I was does. So sure he was going to survive. Like I was like, this is right. It just made the death at the end like so much more shocking because it felt like one of those things where you're like, he's dying, he's dying. No, at the last minute, something's going to save him. And it's important. And it, it's important mm-hmm. for our understanding. I mean, you don't fully grasp the the work that went in, went into the creation of the the world without. Uh, having some of that background info right uh, and it's a beautiful way to tell us about it as well like the someone's death oh yeah and uh, uh, you know like george R. R. martin is always willing to do right he get disposes of characters uh ruthlessly and and i guess i don't i don't remember how i felt reading it the first time uh whether he was going to get a uh, rescue or not i don't remember any of that but I certainly didn't anticipate him escaping this time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that that goes away. But even so, like even me saying it's the worst part of the book, that's not saying it's bad at all. It's just mm-hmm. it's just like I can see sort of him. He needed to do a scene there, and most of the time, the, when people criticize Dune or the original Dune movie, 
you know, getting inside people's heads and seeing their perspective and seeing how their thoughts work. This is actually that as well. And it's it it's in a slightly less um, uh, effective way because the guy's not really there. Right. <laughs> Normally, in those scenes where somebody's talking to somebody or thinking about what somebody's doing or acting, they are standing right there or they're driving a tractor or whatever it is. And you can see in real time them making decisions based on perception. Here, we've got a guy who's being lectured to by his father. Old lectures, obviously. Um, why is he telling me this? Like, that mm. That was me saying, uh-huh, yep. If there's a point where the book is weak, that is its weak point. That's where I would, that's where I would move the knife slowly through the shield, you know? <laughs> well, I, I noticed that... None of the Dune adaptations have this scene. No, no, not, that's not, not true. They, that's in the original Dune movie. Um, he, he doesn't go wandering the desert, does he? He's he's lying on the desert with his still suit all ripped open, and the Harkonnens uh, had left him there. They don't. Right, you know, but, but we don't get the we, we don't, get, we don't this, get the father. No, uh, we don't get the father and the and the and the and the info dumping of what the kind's family because it's made clear in the scene that. This father started this project has been trying to do to Dune for all these years. We don't we even get that in the miniseries. The miniseries is longer. I mean, just Kynes dies in both, but we don't get this uh, aside yeah. of seeing seeing the long history of the Kynes' attempts to uh, terraform Dune in any significant way. That's not really handled in the movie and in the. Uh, and in the miniseries, it's kind of like glossed over that it's implied like the Fremen have been doing it and Kynes just kind of helped. So I, I, I feel that um, having that scene there is sort of an invocation for Paul to take over the duty of mm. Kynes, you know, yep. pick up the torch where he left off. Right. So mm-hmm. kind of have promises to, have to that, do that. Yeah. That's sort of Homeric. Like this is the history of my family and how are you going to continue? Not my family's goal, but our moral purpose and i mean he did it earlier right in that bunker where he where he said he swore to him and everything that his life was just as worthy as mm-hmm. the others but that scene in itself was to me a bit of a spiritual kind of turnover that said okay now somebody can pick up where kinds left off after this incredible explosion which i hope we see in the villeneuve movie Someone if it ever is comes the, is a movie or i, I thought comes. it was a tv Maybe maybe I'm confused as to what's going on. No, it's supposed to, no, the last I heard, and who knows if actually ever get made because this is Hollywood. It's supposed to be two movies. We'll mm. see. We'll see. We we'll see what actually two movies comes. for the first book. Yeah. Uh, that that's all, do, that do, already tells me they don't know what they're doing because it should be three no, no. movies, three books. Uh, it should be three movies. Yeah. Yep. No, or but, one movie like they already made, which David Lynch has mastered yeah. and never needs to be remade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but, but I don't think after the debacle that was The Hobbit, God help us, that taking a book and putting it to three movies, anybody that, if Hollywood's smart, they won't try that again because look what happened with The Hobbit. Oh, God. But we're off the we're off the subject. We should return back to the, the wonderfulness of Dune. So, Jesse, mm-hmm. you, you said this you thought this was the weakest of 
the scenes in the book. What do you think is the strongest? Mm, that's that. That is hard. Hard. I mean, I went with the easy one, Paul. I don't know. Um, there are a lot of powerful, <laughs> powerful scenes. Uh, I mean, I think even just like you know, you know, continuing the camping scenes in the desert are pretty amazing. So, um, hmm. I I'll tell you some. How about instead of telling you my favorite scene or the, the best scene, I'll tell you mm-hmm. I, what I was struck with um, in this reading. Um, so one of one of the things I I don't remember if I ever knew before I must have known it I read the book before a few times um, is that uh, Chani was the daughter of Liet. Oh yeah. So uh, that thought got me thinking interesting thoughts, but um, I don't remember that being in the original David Lynch movie either. Oh, uh- she just says it as a line. I okay. am Chani, daughter of Leah, and it's never made anything okay, made of. Right. Yeah, the audience has to figure it out like, oh, he, she's his daughter, but it's never actually connected on screen. Other yeah. than that. There's, so there's, it's very interesting. Um, I started looking at the parallels that are going on, and what, what, the, the most striking parallel, uh, you know, she, her father's dead, his father's dead. They're made for each other. <laughs> and then, they, they made um, for each other. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> what Will said before that, you know, Paul carrying on Kynes' work, Paul is Kynes' son-in-law. So, yeah. There's a line somewhere in this book, um, you shall know, uh, you know, you shall know them by who they despise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, they yeah, both I, hate I, Harkonnens I, I together. I that line. You know? Yeah, I that line. <laughs> um, so they, they're, both their fathers were killed by Harkonnens. That's, uh, that's got to be uh, a, a love bond, right? And then it also made me think, oh, she's she's the dream girl trope, right? He has a, I mean, we got that from the first book. Um, he dreams about this lady and her asking him about his the waters of his home world, which is such a come on line. Come on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> She yeah, likes you, did, dude. She likes you. <laughs> did you also notice, this was like a really creepy moment for me, was when he sings her that love song mm-hmm. where he's kind of like, all right, I'm going to, I guess he's like stealing the deal. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling her I like her back. Um, is also the moment where he decides his mother is his enemy. Mm. And yeah. it's like, it, it's like right there next to it. Like, yep. Very, um, very interesting. It's kind of uh, chilling. Like, yeah, yeah I'm not the a parent, but I could really imagine good. the what? The psychology, like what he does with psychology, uh, Herbert is really he thinks shit through. Like, so yeah, I mean, one of the criticisms people sometimes have is uh, uh, not of my podcast because I don't really <laughs> engage with the community. <laughs> Of anything, um, you know. But people say, you know, you should mo- read more women writers. And I'm like, well, you know, if they write a book that I want to read, I totally will. But I'm not going to set up set a plan to read a particular slice of uh, any anything. I'm just I'm out there, open to whatever. And it, it may, if you do the breakdown, you may find it's like 90% male writers uh, or higher um, on my podcast. But um, the criticism often be behind the logic there is, you know, women understand women and men understand men. And so if you if you really want to have a better understanding of reality, you need to read more stuff written by women. Um, and I've read stuff written by women, and I'm not sure that it gives me insight into women <laughs> necessarily better than 
just good writing in general. So the scenes where Jessica is talking to her daughter growing inside of her um, and saying, you know, I'm really sad I just poisoned you. And the kid's like, Wah! and calm down, you're making love. You know, and then the, the um, I'm, I'm thinking he's actually really good at writing women. Am I wrong? Herbert's a good I, writer of women. Yeah, I think so. I think that it's a very particular kind of woman. I mean, there's the problem with the whole argument and, and everything you just said. It's like women aren't just one thing, you know? So right, it's like, right. Yeah. They're not just they're not just uh, two X chromosomes. That's not right. <laughs> but if you but for Jessica's kind of woman, like for her purpose and and the way she thinks, and then um, yeah, the way she's dealing with this sense of a I mean I haven't experienced it so I don't know what it's like to have another life inside you but I ex- it I assume it's just real. like just like that scene in Dune <laughs> yeah it must be exactly the same <laughs> identical <laughs> nailed <that's>, it <laughs> yeah. and, and while you're doing drugs and you're pregnant you know that's exactly the sort of experience that is one thing that's pretty weird is that she definitely didn't think that through too carefully i mean she was thinking more of paul she was like yeah. should i worry about my fetus or should i worry about my born child and she was really doing that for paul and not worrying too much about the child inside her well she what choices did was she given right she could yeah she she's i think she doesn't want to think about it and that's why she doesn't think about it until she's committed herself right right but the reverend mother did sort of when she says you should have told us you were pregnant, I was kind of like, yeah, you should have. <laughs> like you could have. Yeah. Here's here's something Maybe. that here's something that struck me about this scene this time through that I hadn't before. In the uh, earlier in the book, um, the um, the Benny Gesserit scolds Jessica like, you should have born a daughter, not a son. How could you have? You 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 screwed up the plan. Which implies that, well, the Benny Jesserick can control the sex of their babies. Yes, they. We we, yeah. we got that from book one, right? Right, right. But then the point is, so why did Jessica choose to have a daughter this time? Hmm. It's not addressed in, in a text at all. I don't That's even true. think nobody even thinks about it. But why did she choose it? She could choose a, another boy or a girl. Why did she choose a girl? It's it's an unanswered question. And I would really like maybe, to know. Maybe she didn't choose. No, no, but she's a Benny Chester. She can. Maybe she, she, she just she, let, what, she just wanted to no, let it go there's random. No reason to choose. Why should uh, she? Yeah. But, uh, right. I, I thought, thought there was the boy out of the love of the Duke. Mm-hmm. Right. But for the second child, then there's no motivator outside of. Uh, well, there's no motivator. Well, at all. The, maybe it'll help uh, seal up the deal with the Harkonnen. She doesn't know the future like Paul does, right? Right. But it'd be nice. It'd be nice if, I mean, that she could have that that would have been addressed or thought about because it's, mm. it's kind of it's kind of a hole because she can clearly do it whenever she wants and so why didn't she do it in or why did she choose a daughter? I mean, what I mean, we don't see a choice. I'm going to assume that she had to have chosen because that's just the way it works because she can. So why did she choose a daughter? I mean. Go, I'm not I sure. Mean, I'm not sure it is a whole poem because uh, so I'm a very wise person. I, I that's what I, I know. I know how wise I am because I tell myself you're very wise, Jesse. And one of the things that I I do is I try not to have preconceptions about things that um, I don't have enough details about. So for example, imagine we're in a cafeteria, right? Um, and 
uh, everything in the cafeteria is uh, always available all year round, but all of the things in the cafeteria are also available as a uh, based on imports and exports. So they've got two kinds of pie. <laughs> I, I use this example all the time. Blueberry pie and strawberry pie. Blueberry pie is in season at a different time, if you want fresh blueberries, uh, than strawberry pie. Because strawberries are, you know, ripen at a different part of the year. Mm-hmm. Which do you choose? I don't go into the cafeteria and say I'm going to choose blueberry pie because I love blueberry pie and I hate strawberry pie. I, I like both. So I say which one is in season and then I let it roll, right? So I, I could see how it could be a a decision on her part. She has the ability to choose, but that doesn't mean she does choose. I usually I, let such decisions just happen, and I find it makes my life a lot better than actually taking on the burden of decision. Um, decisions are actually uh, burdened with something like called uh, sunk costs, and, and I chose badly, you know, like that. And she seems like a fairly wise person, so maybe she just didn't choose and she just let it go. Like yeah, are you guys person. assuming that the directive is off now as well, that she wasn't supposed to keep trying to have a daughter? Uh, I, it's not said either way. That's right. So, but Because I just assumed, I thought it had said somewhere that I thought she was, she'd been, you know, she'd gone against the orders that once and then I thought she was going back to the directive. Well, she would have ruined it again anyways, right? By imbuing the spice. By imbuing the spice. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Reverend Mother doesn't talk about it. Uh, Gaius Helen Mohim doesn't talk about it, I don't think, in the first book. Um, And at what point is she... she, I don't think she's pregnant at that point, right? That's a little before she's about to get pregnant, I guess. I also just found this line. um, It's 38% through, so that might be in book one. Um where it's also a prophecy of Paul. So she could also just be doing that. Like he says he had a waking dream that she will have a daughter on uh, Arrakis. And mm. then she says only to serve. Oh, we exist oh. only to serve. There we go. I missed that. Thank you. Thank you, Marissa. Okay. So it is tied in, mm. but I'm going to annoy Jesse here. So, so, so if the Betty Jesserit can clearly choose the children that the sex of their children, what the heck are they doing mucking around with the emperor for? Why, oh. why does the emperor only have daughters? Oh, he. he but see, oh. that's that's very clear. They don't. The Bene Gesserit don't want the. So one of the things they don't remember what the uh, what's her name? They uh, say it outright. What's the what's the daughter name? Irulan, right? She Irulan. says. Irulan. She says. She, oh, you, you're probably going to the same place <laughs> I am. Go for it. Well, they they say quite clearly that the emperor isn't to choose. He isn't to continue his line. It's supposed to be, uh, super, it's supposed to be um, provided by another uh, descendant. But uh, but uh, the reasoning behind it, I thought, was really interesting. Irland said her mother sent her to spy on the the the, the concubine, the harem, yeah. right? And the emperor had this big problem. What is his big problem? is he, he has self-restraint, right? He's not manipulable in the way that they want him to be, perhaps. Um, so they send concubines to him to secure uh, seed, and he's like, mm, I'm holding off. 
even though he's not like the you know the Baron, um, he say I'm gonna save her for uh, you know a ripe guest or something you know like a she's gonna make a nice um, gift um, because he's he's too self-restrained and I, I thought it was really interesting Baron I uh, know it's Count Fenring and his wife. Yeah, uh, that is really not mentioned in the in the the great the, the, Dune. The, yeah, they're not in the movie or the. Yeah, I mean they disappear entirely, and they're a fascinating couple. I mean, the wife saying, "Oh, okay, I'll I'll go ahead and seduce Fade Rotha and bind him to us that way," and mm-hmm. like you do that, honey. He's like, yeah, that that'll be worse. Like they're a they're an interesting couple that gets no screen time. They're a power couple. <laughs> yeah, they're a power couple. And, and, I, and they're a voice that I wanted to hear so much, right? Because he's, the whole time, he's, uh, 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 yeah. right? He's got that hesitancy. I was like, I really want to hear this. I really, the audiobook was pretty good with it, but I he's really terrific. wanted to hear it in the film, you know? Yeah. Well, I think yeah. that's, that is where all this, those Frank, uh, Brian Herbert, Kevin J. Anderson books come from, is people say, who are these folks, right? right. What is going on? And then that leads to sequelitis, and and of course, you know, the reason this book is so great is because he he wrote a book about Liet Kynes uh, doing the Earth, right, uh, terraforming the planet, and they said, no, 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 this isn't going to work. But this is great back backstory. This is why Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is so great, is because it's like I got all this stuff about elves. <laughs> Nobody wants to read about that. So I'll use that as back backfill for uh, a whole universe that I build on top of it, right? Yeah. I, I don't want to yeah, read really the Silmarillion. Does. I want to read this book. You know, I want to read the, the result of, of those layers. Yeah, and that's, I don't know, I could be totally wrong here, but in that scene where Kynes is dying and he's remembering what his father said, his father talks about mm-hmm. um, using humans as a tool mm-hmm. and to use the religion uh, to um, keep them in line, basically, to keep religion and law, oh. to keep them obedient. And then later, when Jessica is trying to figure out which mission pro- protectiva um, channel to fall mm-hmm. into, she's realized that someone has been here before and has been using it. So mm-hmm. I think that's Kynes' father, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the implication I get, that Kynes' so father mm-hmm. stumbled on it, started using it, and so when Jessica shows up, that's the channel she uses. Right, so that changed her, like, that guy's story, what he did, changed her whole role that she's going to fall into later and change, you know, and then Paul basically blames her for if she's going to bring this jihad, and it all comes back to Kainz's father. Yep. He's like the original domino. And and this has an implication, okay, I mean, here it's showing that world building, so all the planet, all the primitive planets in the galaxy have stuff like this, so if... uh, so if a Benny Jessen accidentally crash lands on an ice planet, it's like, oh, so these people have this sort of pattern, so I will follow this and become the Snow Witch and be able to lead this tribe and get off the planet. It, it's yeah. a fascinating idea that throughout the yeah, that the Benny Jessen would have like seeded all these planets yeah. for, as as with these escape hatches to right. use and manipulate people. And yet this one was a little bit messed up. Like I think she calls it like wild or something. Like I think she can tell that it's not quite as it should be for her story. Yeah. I guess because Kynes' father didn't really know what he was doing when he was manipulating the religion. And Yep. Kynes' father. Kynes' father is ultimately 
the reason why we get a jihad mm-hmm. at the right. end of this yeah, novel. Yeah. And he's I think the, he's responsible. most people gloss over. Most people gloss over that fact in the first place. They just blame Paul for it. But in reality, it does come down to Kain's father. Mm. Um, you guys, uh, cool. yeah, this has just made me think of something in real history. So you guys know about Cortez and Quetzalcoatl, the yep. uh, feathered mm-hmm. serpent god, and uh, yeah, Cortez is the conquistador, right? So um, Quetzalcoatl, in one of his forms, is a, a white-skinned uh, deity, right? And apparently, apparently, here's a quote from a PBS thing. An unnerving series of coincidences led Montezuma to believe that perhaps Cortez was the Aztec god Quetzalcoatl, who had promised to return one day to reclaim his kingdom. Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent, stood in the solar light, the morning star. He symbolized knowledge, arts, and religion. Um, So this conquistador shows up on the shore, burns his ship, says, we're taking this land, guys. And then uh, they do. And one of the arguments as to why they were so effective at doing it, other than they have horses and armor, um, uh, is and disease, don't forget the disease, is the empire's ripe to fall um, because the Aztecs have made uh, many enemies. Mm-hmm. And um, so they get a lot of alliances. But the, the fact that he is inadvertently or on purpose when he figures it out um, doing the legend, right? I am the the one who was prophesized. Um, that is t- taking advantage of of something that's in the culture, and that happens here. But they're doing it deliberately, right? We're setting mm-hmm. it up for a whole system. So this is uh, this is probably more Paul territory than Jesse territory. But the Jesuits, right? The mm-hmm. the Bene Gesserits. What do they do? They go out and they teach all the rules, all to the natives, anywhere around. And then when some priest shows up, you have to do what they say. Because they have special communications powers with the god. And I think that that's that's pretty much what they did in the New World. No? No, the the, the Jesuits did did, uh, proselytize and forcibly convert, and that did allow for the Catholic Church to have a strong control over the population. So, yes. Yeah. And, I mean, they, they did it in Europe, too, but it was more, um, more a lot, much more long-term, less thought-out process, right? It just and sort of and, and, and also you had way. little problems like, say, the Pro- Protestant Reformation, which caused, which broke the monopoly on church power. Right, but you, at you, the cost of you know, like war. in northern Canada or even basically any Indian reserve in Canada, um, the the dominant religion is Catholicism because they were the, the ones who go in there. Uh, well, just yep. just Jesuits basically. Um, so North Vancouver, the natives I know there are all, uh, if they have any religion at all, it's it's Catholic or native beliefs, right? So. Mm-hmm. Uh, they come in, they set up the system, they say, these are all the rules, um, and these guys have special relationship with God. you got to sort of do what they say and help them out in this way. And also, that's that abuse of power, um, the um, jihad that's coming is uh, pretty horrific, and Paul's uh, like all, tr- all trying to stop it, but he doesn't kill his mom. <laughs> 
<laughs> is that the solution? Is that what he needed to do? I, I think importantly in this one, though, is the Orange Catholic Bible contains the Fremen's beliefs as well as the Bene Gesserit's. The Bene Gesserit were just seen as sort of mystical, uh, mystical religious figures in ways that what they did could just not be understood, while Fremen methodology could be understood and it could be found in the Orange Catholic Bible. Uh, but the Bene Gesserit were just sort of on a level. I guess, I guess you're right, it's the same in that there's multiple levels of interpretation to every religious text, and the Bene Gesserit were able to access it in a way that was sort of untouchable to the universe at large and only accessible to a small group. When Paul, when Paul quotes from the Orange Catholic Bible some line, um, his mother's like surprised. I don't think it almost like in the tr- in the traditional belief of the Catholic system, right? You're not supposed to actually read the book. You're supposed to do what the priest right. says. Well, the um, thing's in Latin, right? Uh, well, yes, but well, but yeah. even like a hundred hundred years ago, when it's in English. Um, uh, or at least part, you know, it's accessible in English. Um, there's no expectation that you need to um, read it. The expectation is that you go to church and do what the priest says, and and you take in the wisdom that way. It's a mediated thing, right? And I note the number of times in the book where they don't say God, but they say God's, right? And it's not just it's not just the Harkonnens who say that. Um, uh, Gurney says it. Um, and the Harkonnens, and I think even Jessica says it. Uh, and also, of course, all the makers are gods as well. And so, yeah, let's go. Wild yep. beasts of the desert do not hunt there, waiting for the innocents to pass. Oh, tempt not the gods of the desert, lest you seek a lonely epitaph. The, right? Um, mm-hmm. Gods, what a monster. Uh, that's Gurney. That's it. That's in the film as well. Yep. Yeah. That yep. was one thing that I actually wanted to ask you guys about was, uh, what do you think about the sandworms themselves? Are they the only aliens that are present in the series? Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty interesting, right? So he says in this book with the with the uh, ecology, I think he underlines it a couple of times, which is again. Me saying that scene is the weakest because he sort of repeats himself a couple of times in there, and annoys the reader. The reader by annoying the character. He says something to the effect of, "The patterns of life on this planet are mimicked by the beasts and uh, alien life brought to it. So uh, any human or Earth-based animals, Earth-based plants." Uh, copy the life cycle of the things that are on the planet already, and that does appear to be the only uh, alien life form. Right. Hmm. Do do we have like Caladanian plants? Do we have you know certain kinds of probably slime on Getty Prime? <laughs> or or well, we don't see much of Getty Prime. Um, <laughs> I I, yeah. I, imagine, I imagine they all have their own ecologies. I mean, Caladan we know is a is basically a paradise a paradise a water world because because we talk about air and sea power. You get being a little bit of, can, of description of that that They're, they talk about the flying over the jungles, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And, so 
and rice paddies. So are those terraform jungles or are those natural jungles? Uh, well, they're rice um, paddies as well. It, it sounds like Vietnam, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine terraforming actual jungles. There's much more productive ways you could terraform a planet if you wanted to colonize it. Even even if you didn't want mo- just only monocrops of, say, rice – so I, I would imagine those jungles are probably a mixture of imported and native native plants, and the oceans are probably full of all sorts of life. But we never we never we we leave Caladan too soon in the book to actually know about that, and you we, would we never of, get to see it. Yeah, you would have to assume that because if they are terraforming all those planets, then they would probably be a lot more worried about Arrakis being terraformed in the same way. And then they could have just terraformed Arrakis, right? Yeah. Yeah, because so, in, the, in the next, the following five books, there's never a single mention of any native plant or animal to any other planet. Hmm. In fact, almost every planet, except for Kaladin, is basically referenced as just barren or a cityscape. You don't have vistas or planes or blue skies or whatever. Hmm. Huh. It's been a long time since I've read past the first Dune novel, so I'll take your word for it, Well, um, But I'm just thinking of jumping series from what Louis McSastabuchold's um, Barry Yar. Barry Yar is a half-terraformed planet, so you have lots of Earth and native life kind of running amok with each other. And the very Aryans who have been there for hundreds and hundreds of years just don't really make a def- make make a distinction. It's like it's sold to very Aryan life whether wherever it originally came from. So that might be the case on all these other planets. Yeah, it's not like because I mean because it is it's the it's it's ten thousand years after the founding event of the civilization, which is which is if you follow the. Uh, the late the the later books, especially the Herbert books, I mean, it's not ten thousand A.D., which the movie implies, but it's not. It's like ten thousand years after the civilization started, so it's tens of thousands of years after our own time. So, people have been on these planets a long, long time, and the ecologies have had a chance to kind of grow into each other and be all become one mixed thing. So I suppose there's no there's no concept of a native plant if people don't even remember what Earth is, or they don't remember what plants on Earth would have been. Right. right. It's like, it, it, they don't remember like, oh yeah, this is an Earth, this is an Earth thing, and, and this is right. a native thing. Yeah, they, they just, they, they just, it's a distinction without a difference. Who cares? It's, it, if, you, if, you, if you slip in the jungle and a, mon- and a creature eats you, it doesn't matter whether the creature was native <laughs> or was imported, it doesn't eat you. Yeah. Well, the sandworms are most distinctly, definitely the one thing yeah. we can point out is, yeah, like this didn't come from Earth. This is native. This right. because it's so tied in with the with the dune ecology from from the uh, the little makers all the way up to the major cycle and back again. So that right. that's the one example we get of a true alien, as you put it. Uh, so here's here's a question: Does does the so the sandworms? You, you guys ever read the Good, Goodreads reviews of this book? No. Okay. So the the problem with reading the Goodreads reviews of this book is because it's a such a well known book, 
there's a th thousands of reviews. And more importantly, there's a lot of people who want to read reviews. So I looked at the first two Goodreads reviews, and they're not even really reviews. They're sort of just um, meta reviews, kind of. And the first one is positive, and the second one is negative. And uh, the second one is almost like a troll, like somebody saying, um, basically, if you like this book, uh, you're an idiot, or something like that, right? <laughs> In a sort of a casual way, um, saying, you know, it's not as good as you think. And they sort of pull, whoever wrote it, is pulling his punches in a way, you know, when you're a young person, I know how to troll. So I know I know trolling when I see it. It's kind of a, a, a way of trolling without actually being able to be told you're a troll. Um, just the subtle way it's done. But the first one mm -hmm. is about how amazing the book is and that how it couldn't have been, I think it. I think this is the one I'm thinking of, how it couldn't have been written today. Because if it was written today, people would see it for what it is, which is, a thin veiled description of what we have in reality. Um, you know, it's about, uh, uh, it's about, well, maybe I'll just bring it up. Okay. <laughs> um, so I want to bring this, I, I tweeted at you guys and I, I think Marissa responded to it. Uh, a, a particular photograph um, of John Kerry uh, in the foreground out of focus. And in the background, uh, these two red hands above. Yeah. You know this picture and this, this yeah, testimony? Yeah, I, I, I saw the, yeah, I saw the tweet. Okay, so this is uh, John Kerry in front of Congress um, giving a explanation to why we should do X, Y, Z in Syria, right? Uh, this is years ago. And his explanation is that uh, he doesn't name the countries, but he says these countries, and he means basically Saudi Arabia and... Um, uh, what's the one that's a uh, Qatar? I think it's Qatar, um, or Qatar, um, uh, are willing to pay the full freight, the full cost of the war. And he, he, he doesn't say the war, but the, it, it, if you listen to the speech, it's very clear that he's saying it's not going to cost us a dime. In fact, they're going to pay for us to do it if we do it like we did it in the past, invade Iraq or whatever. And it's like this is a this is an amazing deal. We gotta take this. It's it's hilarious because they're willing to pay the, the full freight on it. Um, and then I I put the quote. It's yours to squeeze, as I promised. I want I want you to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze. Give me blank, and that's it's supposed to be spice. Drive them, drive them into utter submission. Do not show the slightest pity or mercy. Never stop. Go go. Show no mercy. That's actually from the movie. Um, the the one in the book is it also has the word squeeze, but is um, a little bit more circumspect about uh, you know getting it all over a whole scene rather than squeeze squeeze squeeze. Um, and so I just think it, it is fascinating to think of the 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 only native life form as what it is, oil. Because when you get into the, when they first go into the siege, um, I think it's the first siege they go into, um, they have a, uh, a factory for everything, right? They, they have a plastics factory. Well, what's plastic made out of? Oil, right? That's where, I mean, not all plastic, but almost all plastic comes from oil. And they have a coffee factory, or, or they, not a coffee factory, they, they have spice coffee, right? Um, now, coffee is not made from oil 
But the reason we have coffee is because there are ships that are running on oil that bring them up from everywhere. And our economy is run on oil. This planet is being treated like uh, the World War I spoils of oil. Right? So we're going to carve up Iraq. We're going to carve up Saudi Arabia. We're going to use this oil we need to run our, our galactic economy. Right? That's what the... Um, the guild is doing the spice must flow the spice must flow uh, the the oil must flow and so it's the native people it makes me think that this is almost like a retelling of um of uh lawrence of arabia oh oh absolutely i i think herbert meant has said in an interview that lawrence arabia was a formative uh inspiration for paul's story he goes in there he promises a bunch of things right uh, with the greatest Arabia, of intentions. It, Lawrence Ferbey is just a, a segment of it, right? Lawrence is is the first twenty five percent because Paul doesn't come in and and re educate. Paul is the educated, right? He's mm-hmm. the one who is the one that's taking the knowledge from the the Bedouin in the case of, of Lawrence of Arabia, rather than being the one to educate them. So I think in this way, that's why. It has such a lasting and important impact. And and, and and thinking that way, the Harkonnens are actually the Ottomans, right? It's the Ottoman well, Empire. Sure. And that's why you see coffee. That's why coffee is such a huge part of it, because the biggest imp, uh, export that we saw that came out of the Ottoman Empire was coffee in itself, right? Mm-hmm. So to use coffee and to use spice coffee is to have this sort of uh, – this sort of – Ottoman trading economy be mirrored on Dune. Mm-hmm. So, so where's the coffee being grown on Giddy Prime? It's not well, being grown on Dune because you know, Dune it, it's made of, well, it's made of coming spice. To pick up the spice. Whoever's coming to pick up the spice can drop off the coffee and grab some spice. I'm, 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 I'm actually I'm curious that the about spice that coffee network. is actually made of spice. Almost everything well, is made of spice, right? The spice coffee is, in itself demands an incredible amount of water to, to grow. Right. Right. So the coffee in itself can't possibly come from Arrakis. It's just that it's augmented with Arrakan spice before it's able to be uh, imbued properly. Kind of like chai for Arrakan tea. method, the sort of Turkish method, right? It's, it's sort of turning the imperial idea of, European coffee in the salon and the cafe on its head and saying, no, no, we kept it, we kept it Turkish. We kept it the way it was at this point in time. Well, I, I, I want to make a possible counter argument for that. So there, um, you know, during wartime, World War One, World War Two, uh, coffee becomes relatively scarce because it, if you're moving supplies across the ocean, they can get torpedoed. So people do start <laughs> using coffee substitutes that act in a way like coffee does, but doesn't make people happy as coffee does. I've tried some of them. I I found out about this and like I love coffee, right? And apparently some people still like the, these coffee substitutes. Um, and there's some of them are still sold in the states. So one of my friends was down there and I said, hey, can you buy me some of that? Bring a chicory, um, bring it up. Um, I want to try it. And we tried it and was like, this is terrible. <laughs> but they still sell it. It's 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 a coffee substitute or a coffee extender. They also say. Um, however, <clears throat> um, in, in fitting with the uh, with the idea that the spice is somehow related to the fungal masses, right? 
the half plant, half uh, animal creature that is the I don't know the poop <laughs> the, the 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 thing that is under Liet Kynes about to explode, right? The pre spice mass. The pre spice mass. So um, this is a new one. I mean, I just heard about it like a week ago. Is there's a kind of basically a fungus that grows on trees in Canada that you can you know saw off, break up, and then turn into a coffee substitute. It's called chiga, I think. And it's like people will drink anything if it has the right, you know, effects that they're looking for. It's basically hot water and some sort of black liquid with uh. What, what's the um, uh, psychoactive effect? Caffeine. Yeah, a psych, but a positive psycho, you know, sort of a plus yeah. you rather than a minus you. Um, put you to sleep like chamomile is supposed to do, right? This is mm-hmm. a, a this is a perk you up sort of thing. And I, I think that it isn't coffee that was brought to to. I think their entire economy is based on oil. Or their entire economy is based on spice. Everything is made of spice. It didn't say the still suits are made of spice, but I think they are. No, no, dude. No, <laughs> it's just that spice permeates everything because it's so much in the air. That's here's, why. Here's why I think that's wrong. You guys, you know, like we think about oil, right? And like bitumen and all the stuff. It is. It is. But really, oil isn't the same as cocaine. Spice is like cocaine and oil together. Uh, no, no. Spice is not cocaine. Spice well, is some, spice some is other an drug. addictive, psychoactive a, it, quality of a drug. It, it, but I it, just mean in its in its addictive quality, we could we could equate it with cocaine. So in its actual effectiveness, there's nothing we can compare with. But well, I think that's a metaphor. I think that's a metaphor. I don't think you can say you know it's it's addictive like cocaine because oh, it's oh, addictive oh, like yes, oil. If you, if you begin to take the spice and you come off the spice, you'll die. Yep. So a spice, yes, as but that's that's a metaphor. No, no, it's, it's not a metaphor. It's it it's it's mentioned in the book again and again that once you start taking spice, you're addicted to it physically. Because I they mention that. they because they mentioned that Paul can't leave the planet because he's now addicted to the spice. I understand that, but this is the same thing. Like once you start farming with tractors and you've you've got rid of all your horses for pulling, you have to mm. keep buying oil, <laughs> right? This is. This is the the addiction is once you get on the oil once you get on the oil, it's addictive. So everything is almost everything that surrounds us is made of oil. It's at some point there's very little wood in our world left like for physical objects. So melamine, right? Um, uh, there's so many uh, half a, like a lot of food is made out of oil. Like they take a- aspects and in, in, in cracking the raw material and breaking it up into different um, into different materials. It's like sugar. You can make sugar, because it's carbon, you can turn it into a ton of different things. Um, so the, the psychoactive properties of oil, I don't think, are what we're, we're looking at here. I'm, or I, I think we're looking at the, the physical need to have it to run your machinery. Once you have a military that runs not on horses and... Uh, and uh, you know, hey, but on on the physical needs of of a, a motor, right? What, what do they do? What do they do in Germany? They start inventing uh, synthetic fuels because they they're just cut off, right? They need to 
run everything on oil, but they don't have any oil, so they have to have some sort of substitute. I think that that's the metaphor. I mean, obviously, well, this is a book, and it's not a metaphor. Further but, metaphor? Couldn't it be a metaphor that, that goes one step further, and it says it's not just about fuel, it's not just about uh, a drug, it's an ideology in itself. It's, an, it's, a whole eco- it's a whole galactic economy, right? Right, and that's and that's what it is. Because to me, when I look at the Fremen who partake in it, and I look at uh, Jessica and Paul and the Emperor and everybody else, they're still on two sides, right? They're both they're both partaking in this metaphor, but it comes down to their motivations that that kind of sets them apart because they're both dependent on on spice. It's also more like what we were saying in the last book about um, it's their computer technology. Mm. It's, it's more almost that than oil in a way like I think I think that uh, I, I tweeted about that during the week too I don't think I tagged you guys about uh, you know we're, we're gonna have a jihad at some point a butlerian jihad on uh, uh, computers and artificial intelligence right I heard a stand-up comedian talking recently I guess it was on a recent Saturday Night Live saying how you have to prove uh, very often during your your week that you're not a robot. <laughs> you have to say to, you know, some website, it says, prove you're not a robot. Uh, <laughs> look at this, look at this symbol that is so confusing with all these serifs and, and sort of distorted letters and show that you're not a bot. Um, so uh, to me, I don't think it's, we're going to have a Butlerian Jihad against AI, but rather a Butlerian Jihad against the ownership of AI. Like the fact that they are like I'm just I'm rage quitting Facebook or I'm you know whatever it is, um, because it does invade like every phone now has a that's coming out has a button or an assistant, right? And they're pushing Google, what's that Google device that comes into your house and Alexa. Amazon device, yeah, Alexas and all these things, right? And you say, hey Siri, and your phone starts going crazy, right? Um, this that is. Um, kind of in contrast to to the we're making our lives so easy that we won't um, be doing much but other than responding. And it, it was interesting to me to think about, look, these are supposed to be the hard ass, awesome people, right? These these are the what is it? Arrakis was trained to. Fa- uh, um, Arrakis was made to train God, the faithful. God made Arrakis to train the faithful. That's right. Um, that is, the lives we have here are hard because we're being tested or we're being um, we're being readied. Um, and that's cool and everything, but what is their goal? Actually to become soft, right? To make the planet a uh, paradise rather than... And this, this is a very Greek idea. This, mm. this comes straight from ancient Athens where... It would always be about the Greeks living difficult, hard lives, especially the Spartans. Spartans I mean, yeah. Yeah, they did it deliberately. Athenian though, writers right? writing about the this is Athenian writers writing about the Spartans. But what they were saying is that the Persians were living easy lives, and that's why they were beaten. The Persians were living were living easy lives, and any time any Greek was seen to be living an easy life, they were becoming more and more soft and less and less able to respond to the demands of not only the world around them, but the polit- the politics around them and the ways that they were meant to partake in the like world. the Ottomans, right? Becoming soft. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. That's another perfect example. That's an absolutely perfect example. 
Um, uh, it's called Chaga, by the way, um, and you can buy it. Um, oh, thank uh, you. The yeah, it's a lion. You, you, you drink lion's mane and Chaga, and it's like a coffee substitute. It, it apparently perks you because lion's mane is one of those psychoactive drugs. It's very interesting. We get nice. we get a lot of drugs in here. We got more in the first book, I think. But um, uh, was it? I think uh, Thufer has. Um, he talks about taking stims. Again, um, we get the the poison transmuted into um, into the Spice psychoactive sex. sex party drug. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah, basically, basically, Jessica makes ecstasy. Yeah, that's what it is. Good point, Paul. Um, ecstasy, and yeah, I don't know how to make ecstasy, but uh, you that that now chemical. You do. <laughs> Apparently, you just look within. <laughs> no, she, 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 she changes the cow pot. She changes. I mean, I mean, consider the superpower of her. She basically can manipulate the bonds of of chemicals yeah, and change the oxygens their, around and get those that, that is a cool trick. That is a very cool trick. I wish I knew how to do that. That could take a lot of money. Well, that's what I that's mean, what your body does, though, right? Is so you take in you take in this this weird fuel and it goes in and then your body says aha uh-huh, i see so it throws some acid at it right and i said okay okay but we've got some oils in here that can't be digested using that so we need to throw in some squirt in some bile and that does oh that does yeah that has a transmutational effect right so it actually that's the thing about this book is that the magic in it is actually science-based. Now, I don't know how many, you know, if you get your chakras perfectly aligned, if you you do your Prenda, Prenda Bindu training so well that you can <laughs> squirt the right amount of, uh, you know, chemical to transmute some liquid and then you regurgitate it back up, you can actually <laughs> imagine this happening. Um, oh, God. That's, that's right. The only... The only difference is she's doing it consciously. Yeah, she's doing it consciously. She's and choices. I, yeah. I think that you know you could, as long as you understand the chemical stuff going on, it actually works. Uh, uh, this is a really fascinating fact. You guys know about um, the two kinds of alcohol, like wood alcohol and grain alcohol. Mm-hmm. No. No. Okay. Methyl so, alcohol and ethyl alcohol. That's there's right. also ice. There's also isopropyl alcohol. So one of them, one of these it will make you go blind. They will both get you drunk, right? One of them will make you go blind and the other one will not. It'll just get you drunk. Uh, One of them will make you go blind and make you drunk and the other one will just make you drunk, right? So the cure for the one that'll make you go blind, the wood alcohol, is actually not uh, the cure. The thing that will transmute it to allow you to drink it and not go blind is regular alcohol. Grain alcohol. So if you take like a cup full of wood alcohol and drink it, it'll probably taste terrible because you shouldn't drink pure wood alcohol. But let, let's say you mix it with some stuff, you know, make it a cocktail and then you drink it. Um, as long as you add some uh, grain alcohol to your system, apparently this is a cure for the blinding process. What happens is your body says, ah, we know how to process this shit. Right, um, we've seen this before. We transmute this into sugar, and we're good, right? But when it is confronted with the wood alcohol, it doesn't know what to do with it. Hmm. It, it is a poison, and so a con- if you add this combination uh, together, you can actually like 
extend regular alcohol with the widow alcohol. Now, I do not recommend this. I've never tried it myself, but this is as fascinating. Like you go, you know, you go to the doctor or the emergency room with your friend. He drank some grain alcohol, uh, wood alcohol. He's gonna die. His eyes are gonna <laughs> not work anymore. And he said, "Let me go to my bar." Here says the doctor, <laughs> prescription <laughs> of whiskey. Drink this. Now it's a potty. <laughs> it's as fascinating that. Um, that again, this isn't just a book about one thing. It's it's uh, yeah, it's about politics, about how you know you have to have a war in the Middle East forever. The Suez Canal is not just for fun, right? It the the wars over the Suez Canal are not just for fun. Therefore, moving product and controlling empire, you need that control. You need to have the territory secured. The reason they've had continuous war in the Middle East for the last 17 years is not because of 9-11. It's because it's part of a longer process that you start going back. I was looking at it yesterday. as like, yeah, Jefferson is, is actually in the Middle East too, right? And Barbary pi- pirates uh, from yep. the, the shores of Tripoli. Right, the shows of AAA. It's it's like, why are they there? Well, you know, they're trying to control this strait, and they're saying if you pass through our territory and you don't pay the fee, well, we're not paying the fee, and war starts, right? So this is not just a book about one thing, about you know the Middle East and oil. It's also about doing lots of mushrooms and uh, and sex uh, and and thinking about like when. When Fenring, is t- his wife tells him, yeah, I'm going to go uh, seduce him and, and make a baby. And and he's like, well, mm, yes, mm, I see. Uh, I'm thinking, like, uh, his hesitancy there, is that the same kind of sort of expression? Like, I think um, it's Fade says, he looks around the room and he sees everybody has the same mouth, right? They all have this pouch, a uh, pink pouch of a mouth. Right, because they're all basically everyone's in the same family. They're all the yeah. royal family of Europe, basically. Yeah, it's a hemophilia sort of thing. Yeah, well, you know, they've got the uh, the Windsor, the Windsor the nose, Windsor. or the Windsor, right. whatever it is. You know, <laughs> it's fascinating. It's fascinating. I want to point out another cool thing. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll stop for a second. I want yeah, to confirm for our listeners because I had to Google this, Jesse, because uh-huh. it's like, wait. You you, you you save methyl alcohol by ethanol, and I found out yes. So what what the body does mm-hmm. when it when it's when it's confronted with methyl alcohol by itself is it converts it into formic acid. Right, the formic is, acid destroys the optic nerve. That's right. And it says right here that the reason why ethanol works is when the body takes up ethanol along with the the methanol, it stops the methanol from being converted into formic acid. That's right. So, so it's like. Wow, I, I I had no idea this was actually a thing. I was thinking like, are you telling the truth there, Jesse? You, you, I know. You, you that's why I, I, had, I, had I mean, I start to doubt. I I start to doubt it because if I'm not looking at it, right? But I'm like, wow, this is amazing. That it, that is that is amazing. I would never guess. Yeah, ethanol is the way to cure methanol poisoning. Huh? And, and but please go on. Well, I was gonna I was gonna say the other really amazing thing that I I. You know, Paul, you're saying, what's my favorite scene or something? Uh, you know, what's the best scene in the book? Uh, the other thing that I was really shocked by um, is how cool the parallelism is between when Paul has his first kill and when Fade 
has his hundredth kill, right? Oh, oh yeah, that's a great yeah. scene. I I like the I I like the fade uh, killing scene because I mean so many that, layers it's go really that good. Once. It's really well done, and we get to see a little bit of Getty Prime and and uh, how how things are run there. But um, how much time is spent with Paul? Sort of, I don't want to kill this guy. Um, the Jameis situation, the whole Jameis situation, right? What yeah. Jameis is, uh, uh, what are the consequences of killing Jameis? Well, basically, you have to take care of his family for the rest of his life, right? Oh, damn it. <laughs> and you have to take his water. I don't want his water. Uh, versus uh, this this killer who, um, he's he's tra- he trains um, to show off his skill by fighting... Um, people unable to completely fight back, right? Whereas Jameis is actually a trained killer. And when Paul goes against him, it's like these guys are expressing opposite societies. And that the fact that Fade is uh, the shadow version of Paul, where instead of having a, a loving mother and a loving father, he has a creepy uncle. And a creepy cousin, right? And he's the most reasonable isn't, character amongst them. And isn't he's just a sociopath. That, that, that Fade should be Paul. That Fade is that iteration of the Bene Gesserit and the Imperium's Paul. Paul should have been the wife of Fade, right? So right. right. By all rights, Paul being... Uh, Paul not being Paul wouldn't have ended up with what we had now, right? Uh, that the Bene Gesserit have, have developed for whatever it was, 3,000 years. An individual as as uh, <coughs> deplorable as Sting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Oh, come on, Will. When I first saw the Doom I movie do and, 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 and that... Smoke clears, and you see that smirk on Sting's face. I'm thinking, what the actual <laughs> hell am I watching? All I see no, Sting, Sting is in himself the is not right. I, in the kill. novel, in the novel, though, he is he is quite a thing to deal what, with. What, one thing, one thing about book two here, something I didn't pick up, maybe because I've watched the movie and the TV series way too much, and hadn't read this in a couple of years, is is the scene between the Baron and the beast and mm. i mean it, it, in the movie and in the tv series the beast is just seen to be a greedy stupid idiot who can just be cowed and 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 is really just a just a horrible monster that the baron's just going to unleash on dune so he can be killed and fade can swoop in but the beast here is actually smarter than I had internalized because he's asked questions. He's convinced that the Fremen are a bigger threat. The Baron blows him off, but the Beast is more on the ball than I than I actually realized. Did you either, any of you pick, pick that up? Well, he's he's got his spies, right? He's he, he's what? he's got his addictions. <laughs> yeah, but he's but he's not a he's not a as a stupid he's a brute as as, as, yeah. as the as yeah as as the the media ones make him out to be. He's He's, I mean, he's not super. He's not the Baron because because the Baron is hypercompetent. He's not his brother, but he's not an idiot either. Yeah, he, but the Baron's he, not perfect. He you knows what's going on. Oh, they're all they're all flawed. Um, the the flaw with Fade seems to be 
according to I think it's uh, Lady Fenring, um, is that he was raised wrong. <laughs> it was all about nurture, right? Right. Not nature. Whereas, yeah, she's like, imagine if he'd been raised like Paul. That's right. <laughs> um, the, and this also, to me, this this makes me think. Uh, this is again a part of the failing of the book. So I don't think the the that the takeaway, and this is obviously some some trope that's in a lot of fantasy fiction. The takeaway that um, I'm a prince and therefore I have the right to rule is a good policy. Um, now I understand that that is the policy amongst many humans, and many humans say, you know, the reason Kim Jong Un has the right to rule is because his father was. You know, king of North Korea, um, and he managed to kill his brothers and sisters enough so that you know he secured his position or his uncles or whatever. That actually is the rule of life, right? Um, in, in in a nature, you've got a litter and there's a runt. The runt doesn't get the food, um, unlike when we see it, we nurse it back to health, right? Nature is is really cruel, um, and so that is expressed in real, you know. Real powerful monarchies like you see in North Korea, where, you know, the rule is try try to be as tough as you can, as wily as you can, so that you don't get murdered by your brother, or your half-brother, your sister, or your uncle, or your aunt, who, you know, they need you, but they, they don't need you if you're a threat to them. So there's that running in the background. But I I also think it's, it's kind of horrible that the Bene Gesserit think that they can breed a super being. Because I don't think that that's a legitimate policy for us. Um, the breeding of humans to create uh, greater the humans. Genetics in general, right? That's yeah, exactly. Is. But it doesn't seem to work, right? So you take you take two uh, very smart people and you breed them together. You don't necessarily get a brilliant kid. You can, but you also can get fucked up kids. Just like you can get from a brilliant kid out right. of out of uh, well, we two, two idiots. We look at Ramses the Third versus Yao Ming, right? Okay, both in, I don't. Both, I know. Isn't Yao Ming a, a basketball we player? A, we had something in mind, and in both cases, uh, something very different happened. Well, uh, you have to explain these references because I'm not following. Yao Ming. Uh, Yao Ming is the son of the greatest basketball player. Uh, the greatest female and male basketball player in Chinese history, and he ah. became the basketball player in history. However, Ramses II was the greatest general Egypt ever saw. Ramses III okay. was the first. Same idea from behind both of these individuals. But what I enjoy... But how many failed breeding experiments are we not seeing, is my question. right? So you can, you can actually find like great writers who are the sons of great writers... Um, so, for example, Stephen King's son, um, Joe Hill, is a good writer, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody agrees. How many uh, people want to raise their hand and say Brian Herbert is just the greatest writer as his father? <laughs> oh, what? Oh, no. I'm, okay, I'm, I'm rubbing my hand, hand down. in the dirt right now. Just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm rubbing my hand <laughs> in the dirt. I mean, he needed a... He didn't, I'm, I'm not throwing shade for no reason. I, I'm... Sh- I'm just pointing out that he needs a he needs an actual natural born gifted writer writer not I'm not saying he's actually a great writer I'm just saying he's he's naturally good at it writing um, Brian Herbert can uh, not Brian Herbert 
Uh, Kevin J. Anderson can compose novels walking on his hikes, right? This is, yep. this is, he can walk and talk and write novels at the same time. That's pretty amazing. Um, I'm not saying that he's the greatest writer. I'm just saying he has writing skill in that he has a certain kind of skill that's sort of a natural thing. But shouldn't, if this logic works, that uh, kings and queens can be bred, uh, you know, that we get... We get we get Hitler's son and we raise him just right and we met we pair him up with uh, some <laughs> I'm like no I think this is bullshit. However, I think that the when you see w- what's cool, so I'm I'm s- sort of questioning whether the Bene Gesserit are actually as wise as they think they are. They've got this breeding program, uh, but I honestly think that it's it's it, it's kind of the, doesn't make as much sense as just seeing what the effects of having become soft or be, like the ottomans right are becoming soft because they're so opulent in their luxury i think that this is actually a legit thing when you be are new immigrant to canada and you come from a country where you you had to struggle to get to where you were um you work a hell of a lot harder uh at trying to you know make sure your kid gets a better advantage and then as generations go by, you sort of become lazy about it, right? It's like the second generation is, yeah, you should you should study hard. Third generation is like, do what you want, kid. It's all about your your emotions. Yeah. So if you were going to put into play um, something where you wanted to breed or not breed, but grow the right kind of people, you would go the Sardican route. Uh, well, yeah, that's uh, Brian. Brian bowed out. He says, "I'm going to Seleucus Secundus." Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah, on, but again, they are not. So the Sardaukar are so disciplined that they will do things against their own interest, right? Because they they I, I guess find value in in be, being the best. And this is kind of the you know how the Marine Corps works, right? Is they they say you're the elite of the elite, right? And then you get some sort of feeling that uh, I'm special. Uh, but mm-hmm. you're actually just a tool of a bunch of tools, right? The government makes terrible decisions for your country to enrich their own coffers and then sends you to get killed and blunted and 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 you so who's who's right? What is this book teaching us about who's smart and who's right? Because they're all super geniuses. Everybody in this book is super geniuses, but I also feel like they're all making mistakes, huge mistakes. Mm. This is this is this too much uh, unknown factors for each of them. They think that even even with all the mentats they have, there's just too many. Um, it's 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 a thirty car pileup of different plots and plans from everybody, and so that's kind of they're basically like getting in each other's way. Thufer right? He he fucks up a couple of times in his thinking because of of not having the right information. He thinks Jessica's the the baddie. He also, yep. he also, uh, in that scene with Fade uh, doing the gladiatorial scene, which I think is amazing, amazing. Maybe, maybe that's the best scene in the book, in this book. If Fade going through, you know, what I'm gonna do in this, and it seems that Thufer is actually working to help Fade. Oh, he's definitely. Not, he's not, even though there's a hawk symbol on the uh, the slave. Right, the gladiatorial slave who's not a gladiatorial slave, and that's the the hawk symbol is the the symbol of his old house, right? He's he's actually trying to kill Fade, but he's also helping Fade. 
Am I wrong about this? I I think he's. I don't think he's trying to kill Faye. I think he's trying to to mold Fade so that Fade will take will knock off the Baron, and so he'll have a Harkonnen he can control. He's gonna ha- He's gonna get his revenge by training Fade, uh, giving Disapp- him what he wants, and then using using Fade as a knife to kill the Baron. And and supplant him, yeah. And so then he will have, he'll have control of Har- Harkonnen through mm-hmm. Fade. Yeah. He'll have We're, he'll get his revenge though, right? That, that's that's what they yeah. all want. More importantly, he'll, 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 yeah, he'll get his revenge. Yeah, hmm. and in the meantime, the Baron wants Fade to be basically the next emperor, which is interesting. Well, yeah, I think that's I think that that's what the Gen- Bene Gesserit want too, right? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure who the Bene Gesserit. Clearly, Bene Gesserit don't want a child. A, uh, a child of the emperor to be the next emperor because they're only getting do- he's only getting daughters. Um, but who actual ex emperor is? If 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 Paul didn't screw everything up and he screws everything up in for the entire universe, well, let, let's suppose let's let's do thought about it. Suppose Paul and Jessica die in the Thopter crash, and things just go on. I mean, we know we know from a long term that. The society is going deeper into stagnation, but that's over hundreds of thousands of years. I'm the the Harkonnens have Arrakis. After the emperor dies, who's the next emperor? If the Bene Gesserit get their way, I don't think we're told enough in this book to know who the Bene Gesserit are planning. I mean, they originally were planning Fade and the daughter, the daughter who turned out to be Paul to become the Quisitz Hadarach, but I don't think they wanted the Quisitz Hadarach to be emperor. That doesn't make any sense. Hmm. I mean, I mean, the Quisitz Hadarach is too valuable to, tool to have been sitting in a palace running the empire. You use the Quisitz Hadarach to manipulate space and time. So who the Bene Gesserit were planning to be the next emperor is a question we're never, it's not answered in this book and maybe Will can, uh, can correct me. I don't think it's ever answered in any other books either what their actual plan was. Uh, no, after the Quizaz Hadarak, when that doesn't work, there's uh, there isn't a second plan. Uh, if you look to the the Brian Herbert books, they they try to tie it up, but uh, we just hope that it wasn't the way that Frank wanted it. <laughs> uh, why well, don't we try, why don't we try some lightning round questions here? Okay. Or statements. My father once told me that respect for the truth comes close to being the basis for all morality. Something cannot emerge from nothing, he said. This is profound thinking if you understand how unstable the truth can be. Uh, that's Irulan talking about her dad. Um, I think that that's actually true. My father once told me that respect for the truth comes close to being the basis for all morality. So, yeah, caring about what actually says. is is yeah. the most important about figuring out what what should be. I have to, I can only agree with that because that's how I try and live. So I, I totally agree with that. That that is morality. It's, it's like if a book it's of not wisdom, real. right? Mm-hmm. Erlan's got a lot on the ball. I mean, she's she's unfortunately by the circumstances of this of the world that Herbert sets up and everything never gets her due, although she tries. I mean, but she's got a lot on the ball. I, I like Erlen, but poor Erlen 
I mean, you put you you poor princess in the tower, Irland, so to speak. Here's the, here's another one uh, from Irland. What do you despise? By this, you are truly known. Yeah, yeah, I quoted I quoted that one because I really like that because what you actually, I mean, what the kind of things that you make make you hate, like I hate that. That really tells a lot about the person. By I hate what Michio they, Kaku. <laughs> I hate Michio yeah. Kaku because he goes on TV and lies to people about what science the, is. Yeah, that tells a lot about you. Exist. It does. It. it, it, it I know. It, I, I kid. I kid. I kid. I didn't hear it. What did you say? I just told you the future doesn't exist. Uh, well, there, there's a, there is a line about this, and I, I want to throw that at you. You cannot back into the future. That's that's Paul talking to uh, Channy. Now, I, I'm not sure he's right about this. One of the things he says is really hard is... I believe is, there was an Uber car that backed into the future. <laughs> <laughs> at 88 miles per hour? <laughs> uh, no, that's a different thing. Okay. Back into the future. Okay, so... Um, uh, I was I was telling I I had given a friend of mine a ride home yesterday, and I said, okay, now you're in my car, put on that seatbelt, and we start driving. And I said, now you get to hear the story of my theory of uh, the song "Row, Row, Row Your Boat." Uh-oh. <laughs> oh <my laughs> you're God, locked in this car for a half hour, so you're gonna hear my <laughs> theory on the why "Row, Row, Row Your Boat" is a profound story. Um. So I'll tell you why this is. I, I think it's fascinating because. These we we hear these little sort of tunes as kids, right? And then we don't think about them; we just sing them. But it's a song, and it goes: row, row, row your boat gently down the stream, or gently up the stream. I prefer gently up the stream. Merrily, 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 merrily. So you got four merrilies, and then the final line: life is but a dream, which I think is a profound thought to put into a kid's head. Think about that for a minute, kid. You're six years old. Life is not real. It's a dream. <laughs> you good with that? Uh, uh, time, for the, time for the blue pill. Right. And then when you think about why is it rowing and not paddling? Because normally you're paddling, right? You're going, you can see where you're headed. Well, actually, in life, we, we can never see the future. That's the real truth. Is that we? Any? I, I was just reading a really terrific column by Bra- Barrett Brown. You guys know about him. Um, he no. he he was arrested by the FBI for threatening an FBI officer after they came to his house and yelled at his mom. Um, but really, they were going trying to get him because he he was uh, exposing uh, whistleblowers. Uh, well, he's putting whistleblowers out into the public and he has disrespect for authority so he was jailed and put in prison and he wrote some amazing um uh articles and he's out of prison now and he's back and he's writing like he's still in prison he's just a, an amazing writer when you read his stuff he's hilarious and so smart um and he was talking in his latest about thomas friedman uh the columnist for the new york times and all he did to take him completely apart is he just reads his columns for 20 his 20 years of columns his weekly columns and he just shows how he's wrong about everything you know one of the things that friedman does is he says in 2003 he says the next six months will tell whether uh the iraq war is winnable or unwinnable and then in six months he writes the next six months will tell whether the war and he does that 
for like 20 columns in a row or something a ridiculous some ridiculous amount of and like uh. and then he stops doing that and he has all these tricks and tropes and and I've heard many professors uh, like on podcasts say you know I read Thomas Friedman every day and I think you know you just read Thomas Friedman it's like these are idiots these are idiots and he <laughs> takes them apart and he says you know uh, he he throws out lines like um, uh, you know if if uh, Noam Chomsky had a column in the New York Times, it would read like this, right? And I was like, yeah, how come Noam Chomsky doesn't have a column in the New York Times? Because he's circumspect about his predictions and he doesn't uh, obsequiously suck up to power like, like uh, you know, all the the Harkonnens, like the Harkonnens doctor in the first Dune movie, right? He's, oh, your pustules are so beautiful, my Baron. <laughs> your skin i make love to it yeah it's like oh my god yes um oh, he's a he's a complete suck up to power thomas friedman and it's amazing that people don't call him out on it and they read his column week after week after week after week and don't see that he's just wrong about everything consistently wrong because they have no sort of sense of reality my whole thing is I can't tell what's going on right now. It's very hard to tell what's going on. So I just look at history and look back and say, what does this... I, I see how humans acted in the past. See, people seem to be acting certain ways in the present. It's sometimes hard to tell if they're actually acting that way or it just seems like they're acting that way. Um, what is likely to happen? Well, probably more of the same in a similar way as to what happened in the past. But I won't make a lot of predictions based on that. I just say, you know don't expect much <laughs> don't expect much so i think that this story row 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 your boat gently up the stream merrily 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 life is but a dream is actually a great philosophy because you can't t you looking when you're rowing you're actually facing away from the future and paul says something really similar to this at the end he says when he's on drugs and about to have sex with chani i think i think that's what's about to happen um, he says, um, the hard part, he's, he's tripping on drugs, and, and she's like, we're, we're going to make a baby. Um, and he's like, <laughs> wow, she's, uh, she's, uh, she's really tripping right now. And he says, the hard part is not seeing the future, but seeing the past from the future. So he's, he's tripping amazeballs right at this point, because not only is he, you know, he's seen the scenes that have come up in book two in book one, like, uh, here I am with uh, Chani, and she's going to say this weird thing to me. And um, what what is an usul? Or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and, and then and then he no, he doesn't recognize that at, when it's actually happening. I notice. You you guys notice that? He doesn't yeah. say, "Hey, that's that scene where I said I was usul," and yeah, or about the waters of my home worlds. Like it's like he's almost he's forgotten it, and the reader is caught up in the moment. That's right. So looking backwards from the future uh, to the to the past, as in the present, is harder than looking to the future. And I think that is the, is, past, is the past known or is it experienced? Is the what known? Is the past known? Sorry, ah. is the future known or is it experienced? <sighs> really, know. when he sees it and he chooses it. Does he have to know that it's coming, or has he already said to himself at that moment in time, 
this is what will pass. He has. He keeps saying, you know, this is a nexus moment, right? Sort right. of thing. Yeah. Um, it's a cloud. So, so he shouldn't necessarily have to remember what's going on. He's he just has to know that this is what he's decided on, and then that happens to be what comes to pass we have uh what's that effect when you you think you've experienced something before deja vu vu. that's the one right so you have that effect um fairly frequently i think right i mean well Mm. i i don't know once once every once in a while every six months or nine months or whatever it is you have this feeling um he doesn't have this feeling when it actually is a deja vu thing right we have it we say, ah, oh, it's the prophecy. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Just like the fo- just like the folks, you know, they say, ah, she is the Sayadina or whatever it is. Right, right. Um, there, there's only the positive check mark of, uh, of fulfilled expectations, um, and yet this is not science. This is the opposite of science. Everybody makes a mistake. They always say science proves. It's actually not the same thing, but that's not what science does. Science says, well, it's not this, and that's not this, and that's not this. And this one, it seems to be holding up. Huh. Let's go with this for a while. Mm-hmm. So science isn't in the business of proving anything. It's in the business of trying to disprove things. Um, and so how could Paul disprove the future? He could kill himself, right? He could... He could uh, instantly shoot Chani as soon as he finds out her name, but he doesn't even recognize it, and and that is very meta. So I'm holding the physical copy of the book, and I can skip ahead to see what actually happens. Paul has a copy of the book, but a lot of the pages are blurry, right? He can only see yep. sort of outline. He's got the Wikipedia entry for for certain chapters or certain scenes. And so, yeah, it's it's very um, it's very weird. But again, I think that it's about the drugs, right? The 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 Marissa knows better than me. Um, this is the effect of taking magic mushrooms, no? Which is the effect? It's a little um, bit different from seeing me. that everything's connected so. and that you can see um, you can see things as they are. Yeah, right. People get that feeling, yeah, and they feel like it's real. Yeah. But Paul's is actually real. <laughs> <laughs> in this fictional book, yes. Yeah. yeah in this fictional him, book. Yeah. No. Hmm. 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 Okay, how about another quote? This is, I, I think I quoted this one on Twitter this week as well. The Fremen were supreme in that quality of ancients called Spannungsbogen. Spannungsbogen, yeah. Which is the self-imposed delay between desire for a thing and the act of reaching out to grasp that thing. Oh, I wish we had more of that in the world. Uh, well, yeah, right? Delayed gratification. That's exactly what it is. Delayed gratification. Um, that, why are they like that? Because they have to be, right? They can't just have as much water as they want. They have to save it up because they've got this plan. Yeah, and that's their real here. religion, right? That's their their real religion is like to transform the desert and yeah. get a paradise. So the, the there is no heaven, although they come close to it when they say um, the wind traps have been strong tonight or something. Uh, that is Jameis telling us he is pleased, 
right after you just murdered him. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, killed him, killed him, legitimate, right? And then, yeah, I was a friend of Jameis. Like, really? He was just trying to stab you a minute ago. And he's making a kind of um, political political speech. Yeah, you know, uh, except it's definitely politics. He's realizing he needs to say this to keep the crowd. He need. He needs to, he, in order to follow the path he's laid out, he needs to do this. Mm-hmm. He, that, 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 there's like constant, constant tension when he's thinking about the future, like what path to take and whatnot. And when he get when he gets those situations where he can't see it, he really gets frustrated. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, I can't see where this future is going to lead. I'm kind of stuck here. That's, that's the kind of, uh, problems of being a sometime prophet when you, when, when you're, Ability to predict the future goes away. What do? You, how do you handle that? And but and we also have to remember he's just a teenage kid in the at the bottom of all this. Mm. No matter how much training, no matter how much he's been inculcated in things, he's still a teenage kid. So when th- when he doesn't get ever when he doesn't have those tools, he's kind of like yeah, like any other teenager. Yeah. So when he's like, my mother is my enemy. He's he's really like, my mom is so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I hate her. I hate her right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh boy, that just leads to all sorts of weird thoughts. <laughs> Maybe she's not his enemy. Maybe he's just like go, go to your room, Uwati. <laughs> we didn't. We didn't talk about Gurney. Um, I, I like how everybody sort of gets there. Everybody's dispersed at the end of the first book, right? Um, and the second book here, we see them taking up their new positions, right? Mm-hmm. Gurney is like, well, I could, um, I could go off world. I could join this guy. We could go rogue and get killed, mercenaries. Um, I guess he's sort of not getting. Uh, he gets sort of short shrift compared to Kynes and t- compared to um, Thufer. Thufer, I think, but, gets a big, big role. But even, but again, here is the thing: in the movie and in the TV series. I mean, Gurney disappears off screen and then he reappears having already been uh, being part of these uh, these smugglers. And we never see the story in, on screen of well, how did he become a smuggler and how, what was that like? At least, I mean, he doesn't get anywhere near the, the screen time in the book that Thufer and Kynes get. But at least we get the sense of the answer to the question, well, how did he become a smuggler? Well, at least we get a scene where Gurney wrestles with the question of, what do I want to do now that my Duke is dead? And that's a real mm-hmm. thorny question. And he's really, really conflicted about it. And the smuggler basically has to take him in hand. It's like saying, look, if you just go ahead and try to get revenge on the Baron, it's not going to work. Chill out and live, live to fight another day. He who lives, who fights and who fights and runs away, lives to fight another day. That's basically what the smuggler is telling him. And it's a lesson that Gurney for all of his experience and all for him teaching Paul, and we see him as the big bad Gurney Hollock has to learn a lesson, and Gurney gets to learn a lesson on Dune in this in this section, and I think it's really great. Hmm. Uh, is that is that is that a mercenary or not mercenary smuggler called Stabin Tuek? Is that the guy? I mean, we we saw him back at the at the dinner party, so I believe. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to. I, I thought that he was a really interesting character. The we don't really get, like I don't remember him being referred to by name, but maybe that's his name. It, it seemed to me like it was all about what's going on in Gurney's head. But, oh yeah. 
But what was so interesting is that the the I want to call him a mercenary. That's not what he is. He's uh, the smuggler seemed to seem to be like very honorable in a very interesting way. He wasn't trying to tell him a lie. He's saying, look, you got to do got to do what you got to do. But um, he was, you know, Gurney was distracted. And yet I was like all with the uh, let's see if I could find his name in here. Yeah. Uh, oh, I am Stabin Tuek, son of Esmar Tuek, the smuggler said. Then you're the one I owe for thanks, the help for we received, Halleck said. Ah, gratitude, the smuggler said. Sit down. Um, it's almost like this guy's a half half world. He's almost half of this world, right? Mm-hmm. And he had a he actually has a, a quote that was pretty awesome, right? Uh, cool your sorrows. We We've the diversions for it. Three things that are the ease of the heart. Water, green gas, and the beauty of woman. It's not like wine, woman, and song. It's but close enough. We have uh, water, water, right? A water, green gas, and the beauty of woman. Mm. It's very interesting. I thought, I thought he was a really... Um, he was not what I expected for... Uh, I've I read the book before, but he was not what I expected to notice is this smuggler guy. You guys feel that yeah. as well? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I think so. I mean, that it just goes back to what we were saying in the first episode. First episode that June is just so rich with all these characters and all their stories and all their, and what we were saying here that yeah, that that people want to write more in this universe to explore these char- characters, mm-hmm. even minor characters that show up. It's random, good writing. Right? Ra- random, it's- random smuggler shows up on screen to teach Gurney a lesson and. He's an itch- and in very small amount of words, Herbert brings him to life and makes us want to know more about him and what his story and his deal is. So yeah, that's really good writing, and it's a testament to why this novel really still speaks to my heart because I mean the the characters just come alive off the page, even in I've, in small sections. I've got that. I've got that section. I again, this is. This is a weird book. It doesn't have chapters, right? It has books, and then it has epigrams, and, and then ellipses or whatever, and then we move on to the next scene. So here's that scene. Halleck turned from his reflection, stared at Tuek. He saw the family resemblance in the smuggler now, the father's heavy overhanging eyebrows and rock planes of cheeks and nose. His, his face is like, a, is like the landscape. You, your men tell, of your fa- tell me your father's dead, killed by the Harkonnens, Halleck said. By the Harkonnens or by a traitor amongst your people, Tuek said. Anger overcame part of Halleck, Halleck's fatigue. He straightened and said, Can you name the traitor? We are not sure. Thufir Howitt suspected the Lady Jessica. Ah, the Bene Gesserit witch, perhaps. But Howitt is now a Harkonnen captive. I heard, Halleck took a deep breath. It appears we've a deal more killing ahead of us. We will do nothing to attract attention to us, Tuek said. Halleck stiffened, but... You, you and those of your men we've saved are welcome to sanctuary amongst us. It's almost like these guys are like a, they're their own kind of Fremen, right? I'm seeing like sort of the same sort of quality amongst them, just sort of in a rougher, they're sort of like the shadow version of the Fremen. Yeah, like, like a subculture. Mm-hmm. You, you speak of gratitude very, uh, very well. Work off your debt to us. We can always good, use good men. We'll destroy you out of hand, though, if you make the slightest open move against the Harkonnens. But they killed your father, man. Perhaps. 
And if so, I'll give you my father's answer to those who act without thinking. A stone is heavy and the sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than them both. That's pretty good. You you mean to do nothing about it then, Halleck sneered? You did not hear me say that. I merely say I will protect our contract with a guild. The guild requires that we pay a circumspect game. There's a wonderful word, circumspect. Uh, which means to look all around. And of course you can't look into the future. There are other ways of destroying a foe. Ah, uh, indeed. If you have a mind to seek out the witch, have at it. But I warn you that you're probably too late. And we doubt she is the one you want anyway. How it made few mistakes. He allowed himself to fall into Harkonnen hands. True. True, right? How it's the great genius. And he didn't see the traitor. You think he is the traitor? Twix shrugged. This is academic. We think the witch is dead. At least the Harkonnens believe it. You seem to know a great deal about the Harkonnens. Hints and suggestions. Rumors and hunches. We are 74 men, Halleck said. If, you're seri- if you seriously wish to enlist with us, you must believe our duke is dead. His body... You must believe our duke is dead. His body has been seen. And the boy, too, young Master Paul, Halleck tried to swallow, found a lump in his throat. According to the last word we had, he was lost with his mother in a desert storm. Likely, not even their bodies will ever be found. So the witch is dead then. All dead. He doesn't have a tear for Paul. Interesting. Uh, so your copy says likely not even their bodies will ever be found? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I'm just like, I was reading it while you were reading it out uh, loud, and my copy's got different words. What does it say? Uh, likely not even their bones will ever be found. Ah, interesting. Mm. Oh, no, it does say bones. I, I, I must have transliterated in my head. Oh, okay. <laughs> because the audio, I was listening to the audiobook while uh-huh. reading my Kindle as well, and there was a lot of differences between those as well. Wow, so I just wondered if there's different versions. Yeah. Yeah, there must be. Um, I just think it's I think it's fascinating um, seeing him get taken in. And notice what was the number of Fremen that Paul and Jessica join uh, in the desert with when Stilgar comes across them. They become a military troop and they're crossing the desert, dragging that foot and <laughs> walking without rhythm. How many? How many is it? Is it eighty? I can't remember. I think it was like something like that. Um, so it's it's Jameis and and um, Chani and uh, a bunch of other Fremen along with uh, Stilgar, right? And they come right. across uh, them in a in what is essentially a garden, right, on another rock outcropping, and say, "Yep, we're going this way. Join the crew or not." This is actually a very interesting parallel, I think, because this is a scene where they they don't have a lot of choice. <laughs> you you have a choice, Paul. You can join us because you're you're young and trainable, but the mother there's no value there, right? Yeah, yeah um, it's just to prove her value. And then in this case, the uh, smuggler wants to have their fighting skill because obviously they value these guys' fighting skill more than their own fighting skill. And whereas the other way, they say uh, Paul is at least trainable because he's young. The mother, there's no value there, just the water, right? So this kind of cruelty in in the desert, the water discipline, is, I think, really fascinating with the smugglers sort of being, um, they are the middlemen between the Fremen and the the guild. They actually are making a good living, but they have a lot of problems that have to be solved by having 
backup. It's it's fascinating, fascinating book with all the the parallels going on in this this book too. It's just fascinatingly interesting. Um and and there's a story going on too amongst all this structure. Yeah, it's crazy. It's all the it's like um, I guess Jessica keeps on saying plans within plans within plans, mm-hmm. but it's also mm-hmm. it's really systems within systems within systems, and then you get stories of the people like inside each different system, like the ecological system, the political system, the religious system, the smuggling system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and the stories intersect and reflect and refract and run in parallel. Yeah, and, and all in all sorts of different combinations. This is why I love Doom, folks. It's so good. And so I guess the the going back to that the worst scene in the book, <laughs> um, part of kind says something that I think is pretty pretty interesting for the rest of the book, uh, the next book, and I guess all the sequels that come thereafter. Uh, no more terrible disaster could befall your people than to fall to for them to fall into the hands of a hero. Mmm. Mmm. And yeah, who's the hero? Paul. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh-huh. That's a very meta commentary from the author right there. Yeah. It's yeah. Saying, does it, look out anyone for the next have that book, quote guys. that he says about heroes? Actually, uh, Frank Herbert, like actually. No. no. But I know that Paul is the Paul is the hero initially, right? And then he he kind of takes over as more more so as the thing progresses. Mm-hmm. It's it, he's um. By not killing himself, by Paul die, not dying, he's he by not killing his mom, by not changing things, he's going along with the jihad that's coming that he sees coming. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, he's greasing the path. Yeah, yeah, and kinds, kinds. I think Jessica says something about how how easy the um, the Atreides are at winning people to their side. Right, how it's just so natural for them, whereas I guess for her it's all about training and discipline and you know, and making the right sixteen moves of, of pleasure or whatever it is. <laughs> um, show me the eighteen moves of pleasure, woman. Um, that is uh, oh, and there's another thing I want to talk about in this book too. But um, I just think it, it's it's funny that Kynes was seduced, right? Kynes was seduced by Paul and and his father. And gave allegiance to them to his own doom. Yeah, right? if he. Had, I mean, I guess his daughter it, ends up it. with a good position, but you know, kind of the wife of Hitler is not the greatest job uh, in in history. Um, I I didn't read up to book five. Um, who did? Will did you read all the all of these books? When we lose Will. Will's gone. <clears throat> Paul, did you read up to uh, book five of? It's it's the... been a long time since I've read past the first book. I did. Things just get longer and stranger, and that the the whole golden path and the plans. Mm. Paul's I'm almost Paul's afraid book. to. Yeah, yeah, I don't think I'm going to. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'd reread past the first book. Maybe someday, but not now. But yeah. for now, but for now, we have we still have a whole third of it's gonna get dark. Actually, Dune to get through. So that's right. Okay, so there's one there's one other um, 
interesting thing that I noted in here that I didn't note in the first book. Um, and that is that when Jessica uses the voice, she has to actually have them talk for a while before it, she gets their frequency. Did you guys notice that? No, she, I didn't. she mentions that earlier, though, when, when she's the first time that she met, meets the Fremen uh-huh. and she before she hears their hunting language that she recognizes she says that she has to hear the 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 ways in which they speak before she can sort of manipulate them before she can understand them right yeah that's cool i think yeah it comes from firstly hearing the way that their speech works before she can use the the voice on them in a way that will work properly that's that's the power that um bill clinton had too he says, <laughs> I feel your pain, right? He was really good at winning the room, apparently, right? So he goes to the place, he sucks in the uh, the vibe, and then he uses the words that will manipulate them in the right way. I think this is legit what what he's talking about, what the voice is. And I talked about how it's the teacher voice, the voice of command. Right. But that's not exactly the same thing as as pressing the buttons of what people want to hear, right? Um, mm. And phrases, phrases like axis of evil, that is a powerful phrase. That's why it sticks in the mind, right? Yeah. Because it gives us axis, A-X-I-S, which is, those are Nazis and Japanese and uh, Italians, right? They're the baddies. Axis of evil is like double evil, right? Yep. Wow. It's yeah. it's it, it it goes right to the root of the brain. If people like acts of evil, oh crap, those are real the bad guys. Yep. And you say we got it. So when somebody comes up with a new metaphor, and that's what that's what actually right. Everything is everything is metaphor is one way of putting it. But when you come up with a new metaphor, one that sticks in the mind, they mm-hmm. are actually it's like a new um, uh, um, martial arts uh, attack that people haven't seen before because. What I'm talking like I'm a martial arts expert. Never had a karate class my whole life, okay? But my understanding is that it's about move and counter move. So if somebody comes at you with a particular kind of attack, or I guess sword fighting is the same way, right? You have to have trained to take in that kind of attack. And you know how to counter it. It's all about countering, right? And this is actually... Um, there's a po- another good podcast called Mixed Mental Arts, um, which is... Uh, you know, mixed martial arts sort of take off in the ideas. They take different kinds of philosophies and different kinds of knowledge and use them together to make you a stronger fighter. Mind fighter, that is, rather than physical fighter, right? Mm-hmm. And so a phrase like um, axis of evil comes in and people just don't know what to do with it. They have to process it and they have to live with it for a while. And then, you know, six months gone by, a year's gone by, and people say, wait, why are we in a war with these countries and why are we trying to start world war three oh because that phrase got into the popular lexicon and was repeated by chattering heads on tv and people start picking it up and now i'm talking about it that is the power of a of a new metaphor right yeah and it sticks in the mind and and that i think is exactly what what the atreides are good at is is you know they they win the room and the Bene Gesserit do the same thing, right? They they win the they win the action. It's it's a beautiful metaphor. This book is is so good. So good. Yeah. 
We lost you for a minute there. Well, oh, we lost him again. Lost again. <laughs> wow, the Japanese are taking their toll. Are we done? I think we're done. Pretty close okay. on done. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. We do nasty things to our leaders. We shoot them in the streets of Dallas and uh, uh, hang them on pieces of wood at Golgotha. We fondly say that in the United States we separate church and state. That's an asinine statement. I am a political animal, and I've really never left journalism. I'm writing about the current scene. The metaphors are there. I'm writing about the political ecology, the uh, religious ecology, the social ecology, and the physical ecology of our world. And I think you do not separate any one part of this from the others. You don't separate mind and body and understand the human being. This exclusive Walden Tape Special Edition. We're proud to present author Frank Herbert and filmmaker David Lynch discussing the making of Dune, the motion picture. Following some insights into the filmmaking process and challenges faced by writer-director David Lynch, Walden Tape spoke directly to Frank Herbert about beliefs, values, and his writing. Join us now for a truly unique experience with two magnificent artists of our time. Listen, learn, and enjoy. Walden Books is proud to have the opportunity to speak with author Frank Herbert and director David Lynch. David Lynch is is not only the director of Dune, the motion picture, but also the author of the screenplay. And right beside me is Frank Herbert the author of the book and, of course, all of the subsequent books which have become so immensely popular. The first question that I wanted to ask was of the filmmaker. Did you feel threatened by the fact that that so many readers had had no doubt seen Dune so many times before they'll have the opportunity to come into the theater and see your Dune? What was the question? No. <laughs> You've got to be either uh, stupid or crazy, you know, to do something like this. And I live in fear 24 hours a day. So you're you're definitely cognizant of the of the, the stature. Yes, why, did I say, why don't you ask me the question? Because I've seen the film. <laughs> no, somebody has to do it, right? Yeah. And someone had to do it. And um, I was I the the day I finished reading the book, I met with Dino in his office, and I was so high from finishing the book, so and so thrilled with you know what I'd read. Uh, I I signed on and I didn't really know it was going to be three and a half uh, of this type of you know year mm-hmm. but um, uh, I'll let Frank you know tell you what he thinks Dino De Laurentiis came to you or brought you to do the project before you were even really I never read aware. I never even heard the word Dune he thought it was June I thought he said June <laughs> well, I do want to ask uh, Frank the question about the film, what he thinks of it, and and that's kind of a loaded question because Frank is a filmmaker himself, something I didn't know until today. So you're not working with someone who's not aware of documentaries. 
but different thing. You're aware of the process. Oh, yeah. of, of, of the visual medium, and you're happy with the film. Well, I get asked a specific question a lot of times. If the settings, the scenes that I saw in David's film match my original imagination, the things that I projected in my imagination, and I must tell you that some of them do precisely. <clears throat> some of them don't, and some of them are better. Uh, which is what you would expect of uh, artists such as David and Tony Masters. And, um, and I'm delighted with that. I mean, why not take it and improve on it visually? As far as I'm concerned, the film is a visual feast. I, I would love to have some of the scenes as stills to frame and have around me. They're beautiful. So you feel there was there was a synergy between the two of you, the director, the the uh, screenwriter, and and the and the actual creator of the concept. Synergy. You mean to some is more than the parts. That's right. <laughs> that something better came out of uh, out of the two of you working together. I think so. What was what was. Frank's participation. I'm asking David this question. Well, I'm in the process of so. I uh, signed on to do, you know, uh, Dune, and so I always, uh, when I was working on the Elephant Man, uh, I w worked with, you know, Christopher uh, Devore and Eric Bergman, um, and we tried to be true to the essence of, you know, the Elephant Man. And in Dune, I tried to be true to the essence of Frank's, you know, book. And which is not a, uh, an easy thing, because there's so many different lines and so many different little things swimming about. Um, it's picking and choosing and condensing and you know all sorts of things. But so Frank's uh, contribution was you know the book and his support from day one all the way through to now. And he's always available you know for you know questions and he's read almost every you know draft. Of the, I did seven drafts, and he's. Um, you know, allowed me to you know do my thing, and uh, and his book is uh, packed full with you know these what I call seed ideas. There's the big ideas, but there's so many little seed ideas, and um, those he let me you know sprout and uh, and run with, and that was the thrill for me because uh, there are things in the movie that were sparked, you know, by Frank, but they were allowed to, you know, to grow out. And uh, so, and I think it would be neat for people to, who have read the book, they will see, they'll see a, a, um, a difference, but, but it's true to the essence of uh, Frank's ideas. The film begins as the book begins, and it ends essentially as the, end, as the book ends. And I hear my dialogue all the way through it. Not not just my dialogue, but there's lots of other dialogue. But I had the funny sensation in watching the rough cut, uh, not exactly too rough recently, of some of the cuts, the things that are not in there, of feeling that they'd happened just off stage or uh, we'd gone beyond them, but, but they'd happened, uh, that we hadn't really lost them. There are only, there are only two scenes that... Uh, that I missed in the film, but I know why they were cut. And they were pets of mine, and and you shouldn't have any pets when you're doing a. a no, they were pets of mine too, but uh, I know it seems they are. <laughs> but you know, those are the you know those are the things that uh, that's the trouble. The, the film right now is is two hours and twenty minutes, and it rolls along gangbusters. 
but uh, certain scenes um, that uh, Frank and I both, you know, liked, uh, I think would have, you know, stopped the film. Mm-hmm. Was this merely a stroke of luck that, that two artists uh, from two different mediums, and obviously two sensitive artists, uh, didn't really experience any substantial difficulty in molding or contributing to the production of this film. On my part, I consider it, you know, pretty lucky. Yeah, because I, I think a license you got. You did you expect the license that Frank gave you? With, with well, when I I met Frank, you know, three and a half years ago, you know, when I first signed on, and um, I didn't know who or what I was going to be meeting. I'd seen his picture of this, you know, bearded, uh, you know, guy <laughs> on his books, right? Cool. Yeah. And um, so, but it's turned out uh, to be like, uh, well, Frank is an idea man, and they're the best kind of, you know, people in my book and around. And ideas are, uh, everybody you know, feeds off them, but very few people, you know, can catch them. And they're out there, but they're you know, they're so elusive. And you have to, you know, uh, you know, be kind of sneaky and and sneak up on them and and to capture them. And uh, Frank uh, captures these, you know, fantastic ideas, and um, I really, you know, respect that. Frank, did, did, you're obviously satisfied with the result. Yes, you very said much so many times. But the funny thing happened. <clears throat> Dino called me. I didn't know David from Adams Off Ox. And he called me and he said that he had hired David Lynch to do the to direct the film of Dune. And this was after a couple of um, well, I think they would have been disasters. <laughs> but and David knows why. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so uh, I said, David who? <laughs> And uh, he said, David Lynch, uh, uh, he said, uh, Elephant Man. And I hadn't seen Elephant Man. Mm. So I went out and got a tape of it and played it on my video. And I had this funny gut sensation. We had the guy who could do it. When you're doing a film, you're from a, the written word, you're translating into a different language. It's as though you were translating from English to Swahili. The, the visual language is a different language. And there was such subtlety and such beauty in uh, uh, in the Elephant Man. I've seen it now about eight times, I think, and I get something new out of it each time. Uh, something peripheral or something right in the mainstream that was done visually, as a visual metaphor. I've never told David this, but... Uh, <laughs> But this is true. This this is what happened to me. I I had this gut sensation. I said, "We've got him." <laughs> you know, the guy who can do it. I'm glad we're having this talk, David. Did you, as a filmmaker, uh, I think by anyone's estimation, Dune was written uh, very visually. I mean, as a piece of literature, the, the visual description, uh, just the visualization of it, is very immediate. Did that help you in your translation to the screen? Well, like I said, well, if you, I, I really in a way, forget a lot of the book now because there have been so many drafts of a screenplay in between. But some things, I, I, I really think, in your mind, you think that Frank, you know, described things. But when you go searching, some things are described, of course. But a lot of things are uh, left to, you know, your imagination, even in, in the book. 
and um, that was deliberate, you, I might add. And you get a feeling, and then your mind takes over from there. And so, when a lot of times we'll go searching for descriptions of, of, of things, um, they weren't there, or. Um, I realized that um, I was picturing something, and I was, you know, falling in love with, you know, what I was picturing. And so, uh, you know, the, like I said, Frank allowed me to, you know, to go with, you know, uh, my interpretation uh, and, and uh, you know, how things looked. And uh, because of that, you know, I was able to... Uh, it was it was my interpretation was one thing and then i started working with tony and we went to through two or three different uh steps into uh sort of the stratosphere of you know inter interpretation and we got uh clicking on four really nifty uh different worlds and the look of each one so the motion picture is is truly uh an entity unto mm -hmm. itself yeah if you love the book You'll love the motion picture even more because it's 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 it takes on a new dimension. I I, I can see how um, everyone who reads the book is going to interpret it, and their interpretation is not mine. But I have to, you know, I, it has to go through through me as a director. It's like a, you know, uh, I always say like a filter, and things pass through me, and and it's it's not going to be other people's interpretation. Some people like. Uh, may love it and some people say it you know it's not what they pictured and they would be disappointed you know that's the way it is again the the book being so visual some people anyone who's read it has been there before exactly yeah what about the tools that you had to employ as a filmmaker especially a modern filmmaker in this day and age what did you do what did well, you have fun with every ideas? technique known to filmmaking has been used on this picture uh, except for stop motion, strangely enough, but every other kind of thing. And uh, so I've learned a tremendous amount uh, of, you know, technical things. We've built over uh, about 80 sets in uh, what amounted to 16 sound stages down in Mexico. We've traveled all over the world, Rafael and I, uh, Rafael de Laurentiis is a producer, um, first looking for locations and finding, finally uh, going to Mexico. Um, I've seen actors, you know, for this picture all over the world, and people in this film are from all over the world. The crew is from all over the world. At one point, there was 1,700 people on the crew, and that's that's a huge amount of people. And sometimes I turn around on the set, there'd be 600 people. Uh, they're not extras, you know, crew people or visitors or camera crews or whatever, uh, you know, on the set. So it's been a uh, strange experience, but a huge, fantastic uh, experience. What are some of the techniques? Go ahead. Yeah, I, I want to add a little bit to this. A very strange thing happened at the rap party down in Mexico. Uh, at least a dozen of the actors and actresses who were in it came up to me and said individually the more or less the same thing, that they were sorry it was over, they had such a good time. So it wasn't necessarily a grueling experience that drove everyone insane. No, we were we were uh, really together. It was it was a great experience, and we were in a, a foreign world. We were in you know uh, Mexico City, uh, uh, which is I still I will always feel the perfect place to make Dune because Dune is a, is a foreign world and four foreign worlds. And if I was making it in, in uh, Arizona, it would be too normal, you know. Mexico City was just the right atmosphere and the right mood to kind of let your just it was to help your mind get out there, you know, into um, 
Dune. There was a certain kind of rapport between the producer and director. Uh, we had our disagreements, but they weren't they weren't major disagreements. They weren't shouting disagreements or anything like that. If you could explain your your point, people listened to you. The only time that I objected to something that was going to be done, David and Raphael and everybody else listened to me, and they didn't do the thing that I didn't want done. Can't remember what it was. You weren't going to kill off. Oh yes, that's right. Yes, yeah. yeah and the only thing way, I ever yeah, right, to. Exactly. Yeah. Did he kill them off then? No. Yeah, they did. Oh, you but in the proper way. In yeah. the proper way. Yeah. yeah. So we'll see <clears throat> that when we go to the motion picture. You'll see an authentic right. scene that's from from the book and uh, uh, very poignant. Hmm. Who's going to be killed? Let's don't tell them. So there are two more Dune projects, potential Dune projects already in the already works. In the works. I've started writing on on the script on Dune two. And um, it needs a lot more work, and then I'll, I'll show it to Frank and uh, see what he thinks. He'll be a tough audience. <laughs> Tougher than hell. <laughs> now, you're, you didn't, uh, it's, it's interesting that, that Frank didn't do the screenplays for Dune. Why did that happen? Well, I did a screenplay, and it was awful. <clears throat> um, so I never read Frank's <laughs> script. I don't believe it was awful. I don't know. You know it was too I, long. It lacked the proper visual metaphors. Um, I was too close to the book to be able to see it as a, as a film. David didn't have that problem. Uh, working on this film with David has taught me one great deal about taking the printed word, a screenplay, and making it into a film. Now I feel competent to do a screenplay. I don't know if I could do a screenplay of one of my own books, but, uh, well, yes, I can. I'm doing it. Good. So you have mm -hmm. definitely learned from each other in this experience a great deal. I would say so, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And that would would make the next two pictures, I would think, something you'd look forward to. Oh, yeah, I look forward to, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, what we all are, we're a little bit duned out right now. Mm -hmm. um, Dune in, we say. Right. <laughs> Three and a half years you've been on this project. That's right. Three and a half years. It's a long time. But the results are, from what everyone says, well worth the effort. What and that leads me to to the last question I want to ask David, as a filmmaker, have you have you thought of how the public's going to respond to this? In other words, as you've made the film, have you had a place in your mind where you've been been contemplating what the response will be, how people will react to what you're doing? Well, I've thought about. Um a lot about the films that I've, you know, loved and what it was. It, it wasn't, uh, it was a uh, an experience that I had while watching them that I couldn't get anywhere else. I never got it anywhere else, ever. And I would so gladly, you know, pay my $5 to, you know, to have that experience. And it took me, those films that I loved uh, took me to uh, an, another place, even if it was 20 years ago or present day, but another place, and gave me an experience. And I think that's what I, that's what I hope Dune will, will do. And it's four different, you know, worlds and, and, a, and, a, and a trip, you know, through them that you can't experience uh, anywhere else, ever. Thank you very much, David, for sharing your thoughts and some background on the film. Thanks a million. Books. Frank Herbert, every question that could have ever been asked of you has probably been asked. Ask me a new one. But I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to go back to the beginning 
and maybe a little beyond to the real genesis of Dune and where it started for Frank Herbert, the author. Not necessarily where it began as a project, as a book, but, but where it began for you, for Frank Herbert. Well, I'm a history buff and have been a history buff since I was quite young. And while reading history, I got the idea that we had not looked at the messianic impulse in human society from a point of view that I de knew could be developed, uh, reporting uh, that uh, this person came on the scene and these people followed and this is what happened. It was a, uh, a kind of a journalistic approach to it. I didn't mind the you are there approach, but what I wanted was something that showed the impact of a messiah on history as the creator of a power structure. Because inevitably, no matter how good the messiah, other people enter the scene, other people are attracted to the power structure. I think that the idea of power corrupting and absolute power corrupting absolutely is not on the mark, does not hit it. I think what happens is that power attracts the corruptible. That's an interesting concept. In fact, that's almost the antithesis, <clears throat> the reverse of the process that's just commonly accepted. I think this is why uh, great power centers such as the Kremlin, uh, the Pentagon, uh, Kedosi, uh, Sandhurst, become essentially uh, cesspools, really because they get so many people there who are want power for the sake of power. And it's my estimation of it that a high percentage of these people are certifiable. You get real nuts. This is why you get people, for example, going to Guyana and drinking Kool-Aid, because the errors of the leader are amplified by the number who follow without question. That was the beginning. I wanted to do a Messiah story that explored this. The way that you perceived power structures at that time and wanted to make a statement about it is this, you mentioned just a moment ago, that a Messiah can create or develop a power structure. It occurs around the Messiah. That's what I guess uh, hmm. my question is. Does the Messiah walk in, sometimes even inadvertently, to a culture or a society who has already built a power structure. Every Messiah I've studied, every Messiah I've studied in history was a reformer, and for good reason. Jesus wanted to reform the rabbinate. He had a, a belief that it had become corrupted. The rabbinical movement had become corrupted. The same is true of Muhammad. He was a reformer. Zoroaster was a reformer. Each of these individuals obviously was charismatic. Charismatic leaders are dangerous because people don't question them. They see the obvious thing that the charismatic leader is saying that this needs reforming. So they fall into line behind the charismatic leader. And as I say, even if the charismatic leader is absolutely right and perfect in all of his judgments, eventually you get a power structure which accumulates like uh, filings uh, accumulating in a magnet. 
all around the polarized places in this power structure. So the power structure does evolve as a result of the Messiah's activities. That's right. And, but not just the Messiah's activities. It evolves because of the way people respond to a charismatic leader. So it's part of the forms of our society, you see. In the case of Jesus, you mentioned a moment ago, weren't the Hebrews waiting for a Messiah long before? Oh, yes, the Messianic uh, myth was, was there uh, preceded in, his in, arrival. The, in their history. Yes. Of course, he never really uh, exemplified the Messiah. As of course, and there's some question whether he said uh, he was the Messiah. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> the uh, uh, Buddha was a reformer. See, and and Jesus was a reformer. Each in each instance, you have an individual on the scene, a charismatic leader, who sees something that needs fixing. There's a repair job it's necessary. It's obvious to everyone. Yes, and and a lot of people say, yes, you're absolutely right, Mr. Charismatic Leader, and there, we will follow you. There's a broad truth to everything yes. that's said, so it's yes. easy to follow. And then you get a movement going. This is sequential. These things happen. Uh, but they don't happen just because of the charismatic leader. They happen because the society picks up on it. But the society had created a need or a void for, for the charismatic leader before that individual something, arrived? Something had occurred in the society that the charismatic leader latches onto. The stage is set yeah. prior to the Messiah's arrival. That's right. Do societies truly create the Messiahs from within? Oh, I think so. Mm-hmm. I think that the that we kind of create a, a vortex into which the Messiah is sucked. People ask me if I'm starting a cult, and I really I avoid that like the plague. I don't want to be a cult leader. I'm not your guru. You be your own guru. Is that why you shaved your beard? That's, this is the new Frank Herbert. <laughs> <laughs> we do nasty things to our leaders. We shoot them in the streets of Dallas and uh, uh, hang them on pieces of wood at Golgotha. The whole structural form out of which charismatic leaders evolve, that's the thing that I was addressing. But the process starts, and you were referring a moment ago to what happens next. The leader evolves, the leader emerges, and then things begin to happen. Well, remember that Dune, Dune Messiah, and Children of Dune were one book in my head. Mm Mm-hmm. And Dune Messiah was a pivotal book, which turns over the whole picture, changes your view of history. This is why a lot of people had trouble with it, you see. Because I had created a charismatic leader, you would follow Paul for all of the right reasons. He was honest, trustworthy, loyal to his people, up to the point of giving his life for them if they wanted it. And the response... To him, the response to him was to follow him slavishly, to not question him. I think, for example, that John Kennedy was the most dangerous president we've had in recent years. Not because I think the man was evil. I think he was a great guy, and I would have enjoyed drinking with him and having playing cards with him. But because people did not question him. So you are obviously a proponent of questioning authority. Oh, absolutely. Do you consider yourself an iconoclast? Indeed. With with the relationship between the Messiah and the followers. There's a again I want to go back to the process. It all begins well and it all seems very good. Sweetness and light. And then something happens or something begins to evolve. 
A new structure evolves and people take it over. Other people get into the act. So are they drain power away from the Messiah? Of course. After they... <clears throat> it is delegated. And how does that happen? It happens in this, out of a structural force that is in the society. And I think one of the best examples we have of that in recent times that we can look at with a certain degree of historical clarity is what happened in the Soviet Union. The October Revolution had real evils to address. The Tsarist regime was one of the most evil regimes that this world has ever seen. The oppression was obvious? Yeah. Marx and the others came in and filled that into that vortex and took it over. Now, what has evolved out of that? They have evolved a bureaucratic aristocracy, which is almost a precise copy of the Tsarist regime. And this might have this mm -hmm. might have contributed to the fall of, of Nikita Khrushchev. He was the last singular identity as a human being that I recall mm -hmm. in the Soviet Union. Since then, the power has filtered down, broadened, and diffused. So that is the process that will take place in any similar situation. I think so. Human I think I think. Well, I don't think it's human nature. I th well, human nature uh, is involved in it, of course. But I think it is an essential part of the forms that people develop and call government. Which they create for themselves. Yeah. Uh, it's a kind of an evolutionary process, I believe, that has come out of tribal forms. A feudatory is a tribe. So we have this marvelous historical example. It's happened in our lifetimes in the Soviet Union. We have seen them reconstitute the czarist regime. Without an individual yeah. on which to focus. But all of the bureaucracy is there, you see. Even with some of the same names, same titles, I mean. So Paul, in Dune, is caught in this kind of a vortex. Now, did Paul come to a society seeking that Messiah? He came to a society that was prepared to welcome a, a Messiah. So they, uh, his reception was was favorable. Oh yes, and and he was launched not only on his own initiative and ambition, if he had that. The necessities of, of his decision making were obvious, and the society lifted him hmm. quite willingly mm -hmm. to where he ended up. That's correct. Everything else that you created, you were described once, I know, as a world maker. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, let me let me rephrase that. Maybe a world dreamer. You obviously had to to create this world of Dune. It began with Paul. It began with this messianic uh, impulse, the study, the interest that you had as an individual, as a writer, and then the rest. How did it grow outward from that? The first pr thing you have to do is to create the Messiah. The, the charismatic leader that people will follow for all of the correct reasons. They, they can justify everything they do to follow him. And you accept it as a reader. Then we have Dune Messiah, which is the evolution of the power structure. And how devolution begins to set in. And you get the cynicism arising. And you get a turnover of things that were good in Dune 
then now you get a different look at. You look at them from a different angle. Does the perspective you get change? Well, yeah, the perspective does change. The angle of view changes. Uh, prescience, which figures so prominently in Dune. And I'm talking to a society which believes that prediction is a great thing. Uh, but if I were to give you a, an absolute prediction, John, of everything that's going to happen to you from this moment to the moment of your death, your whole life would be instant replay and an utter bore. And yet that's your role. Yeah, but that's, and that's the thing people think they want. But what they really want is they want to know what U.S. Steel is going to do on the big board next week. And uh, will she or won't she? And give me a couple of winners at Hialeah while you're at it. <laughs> but isn't this tremendous response that you've received from your writing uh, based upon that, that eagerness, people wanting to know, people wanting a window to the future? Oh, yes. But you see, it's the future that is the qu in question. The value of surprise gets thrown out the window if you believe in absolute prescience. Now, you've created a future. As we yeah. said, you're a world, a world maker, a world dreamer. Why did you create Dune? Why that planet? Why such an arid, lifeless place? Well, it's a testing place, for one thing. And all of the great religions that we know about came out of the wilderness. Uh, so I created a kind of an amplified wilderness. How much of this, then, of your work, of your writing, of all the writing that you've done, uh, the science fiction writing that you've done, how much of that is a reflection of you and your beliefs as you perceive this planet and our social structures? Well, I, th I think we have to reform our social structures. I really do. And uh, I have certain metaphors in the Dune books that I deliberately chose to shake people's view of the forms. For example, uh, the worms. The worms are the monster, the mindless monster in the depths that guards the pearl of great price. It is the, uh, the unconscious animal. It's the black bull of the corrida. You see? It limits your options of how to deal with it. Yeah. It is the... the welling of violence that comes out of humankind. So in describing or creating a wilderness, then you're exposing uh, elements. Again, I go to the, the phrase human nature, mm. elements of the human condition. I notice that, that, that it's very humanoid. The future remains very humanoid. Well, I want right? real people that you would identify with. And also that they respond uh, in many ways uh, in a very consistent fashion to what we experience now. There's a tremendous amount of conflict in your writing. Many things are resolved by conflict. Now, is that is that a prediction of the future, or is that then, as you said, the metaphor, the reflection of the now? That's the way I read history. If you read history, isn't that the way human beings have done for, since we began chiseling our words in stone? And as it has been then it will continue to be. Unless we change the forms. Now, I don't want to, to breed out or condition out of humankind um, the competitiveness because we're in a universe which can throw surprises at us despite our predictions, despite our best predictions. And we have to be able to respond to this universe with all of our options open. We don't close off any options. If we can respond non-violently, 
that of course is preferable but if all that's left to us is violence then we dare not close off that option you seem to be implying that we have the ability to change a legacy of the ages that we can actually attempt and perhaps succeed at something that mankind has failed to accomplish since the beginning of mankind. Do you really have that much faith in, in the resiliency and the elasticity of the human form? Yes, I think we're the best equipped survival animal that this planet has ever produced. I don't depend just on rationality. I depend on the need to survive, on the urge to survive, on the, on the desire to survive as a species. This is behind a lot of what I write. It pleases me to think that 20,000 years in the future, 20 million years in the future, there will be human beings around enjoying life the way I enjoy life. The World Without War Council. Oh, uh, yes. As a member of the Collegium of the World Without War Council, uh, I have um, uh, bowed out of active participation, although not out of uh, uh, belief in, in that kind of work. I think that we can't address this problem of war unless we address our own bureaucratic tendencies our tendencies to create a, a structure such as the World Without War Council which then becomes much more interested in maintaining its own form, its own identity the ongoing need for its services rather than to create an organization, a form which puts itself out of business. How does this dedication to peace uh, manifest itself in your writing? Um, showing people some alternatives, showing them the consequences of violence, uh, displaying uh, uh, alternative forms, showing them how the old patterns repeat themselves. You describe, well, you have many emperors in your writing. Now, um, as a reflection of the 20th century, for example, what do you see as, as the preferable leadership, a style of leadership, an evolution of leadership? Well, m my own response politically is that uh, I vote against anybody in office. <laughs> I think that, the, that we have the... We've had the examples of how to deal with political power, and that is to give it very briefly. Why is it that in your writing, you, the, when, we, when there are a thousand emperors, or when, when leadership is broken down and bisected, bisected, that that's the, you reference that, I think, as the Dark Ages? All I'm saying there, John, is that the aristocratic forms repeat themselves. Uh. Aristocracy is a repetitive structure in our world. More of a bad thing doesn't improve it. That's what I'm saying, yes. You talk about religion, and you take perspective Another power on structure. Very much so. You also talk about the inside and the outside, mm -hmm. about creating the, uh, a need for your own leadership. Right. How is that manifested in our own society? We see organizations develop which work unconsciously 
most, for the most part, to maintain those conditions which require their services. And it's subconscious? I think mostly unconscious, yes. That all of these structures, these organizations, become much more career-oriented, much more oriented on maintaining the need for their own services and their own ongoing participation in power. Is it a natural process, for example, that bureaucracy begets bureaucracy? I think it's self-seeding, yes. And then how can that be broken? Or can it be broken of its own will? I think you need to break it by bringing the final judgment, the final determination on who holds power back into the hands of what we like to call the grassroots. I would like to see, in the United States, for example, some real democracy. I would like to see review committees with enormous power, very short-term tenure, maybe one year, small budgets, and never able to serve again on such a committee, only once in a lifetime. I would like to see such review committees called into uh, action automatically, given certain conditions. Declaration of war, for example. At a local level, if a school board is going to spend, say, $200,000, automatically a review committee called into being uh, and called at random from the polls of the people who voted in the previous election and given the power of life and death over what the school board wants to do. Will they, will they do it? Will they always act perfectly? No, they won't. But if they only have tenure for a year, then you can go at it again. And you will go at it having learned something from the actions of the previous review committee. Is this an extension of the existing set of checks and balances that we currently have? It's another check and balance that I would like to, to reinstall into our democratic system. But much more localized. Oh, not only localized. I would like to have it at, at the local level, at the county level, at the state level, and at the federal level. In broad terms, are you supportive of uh, diffusing a large centralized power source? Oh, yes. Like the federal In broad government? terms, I am. I think we need certain central powers, but I think we have to limit the tenure of whoever holds that power and severely limit it, and so it's arbitrary. They can only... For example, I think that we ought to have uh, one-term senators and maybe two-term congressmen, and that we ought to have a one-term president, maybe give him six years, and that senators ought to be four years and one term, and congressmen maybe two terms, two years. Wouldn't that much activity coming and going in, in political office create a volatile uh, state of affairs for a society? I think that it would demand that the society keep its eye on what was, hap on what was happening. And that's what we don't have now. In Dune, going back to the book, going back to how that is, is reflected in your writing, mm -hmm. um, you have, uh, of course, the, the, the tribal the Fremen. entity, mm -hmm. the Fremen, uh, responding as a tribe, mm -hmm. responding primitively. But in quite sophisticatedly, too. What effect would uh, would your suggestions have on a society? Would it, it would obviously not tend to become more primitive and more basic in its decision-making. It would have to become much more enlightened, I would think. We have to be much more aware of what's going on. I had a, uh, a senior bureaucrat in the school system in the state of Washington when I expounded this idea to him. He, he said, 
you think some damned housewife could understand the complexities of what the school board has to do? And my response immediately is, yes, you bet I think a housewife would understand them. She would understand these things out of necessity. I think if you throw the responsibility, the full responsibility on the people, they rise to the occasion. Back to Frank Herbert as the writer. Uh, obviously very politically aware and, and tremendously sensitive to political and social issues. That was the basis then for Dune. Remember for the, all of Dune. Remember before writing Dune, I was the speechwriter for a United States senator with two offices in Washington, D.C. I've been right on the inside of the apple, so I know what's going on back there. I am a political animal. And I've really never left journalism. I'm writing about the current scene. The metaphors are there. I'm writing about the political ecology, the uh, religious ecology, the social ecology, and the physical ecology of our world. And I think you do not separate any one part of this from the others. You don't separate mind and body and understand the human being. And therefore, you don't separate any of these elements and understand what's going on in our world. We fondly say that in the United States we separate church and state. That's an asinine statement. There's nothing more emotional than religion. Nothing more emotionally demanding than religion. Because it is the promise of survival. You can't take that out of politics. You get heated emotions aroused. I am a political animal, and that's what I'm writing about. I'm writing about the economic ecology, the the politics of all of these things that influence our lives. The response that you get to your writing, the way people mirror your writing back to you, is it satisfactory? Oh yes, people are thinking and asking interesting questions because of what I write. You're impacting then your readers the way you want to. Oh yes. And you continue to. I hope so. And you have a new book in the spring called Chapter House Dune. That's right. Where is that going to be? It's the sixth Dune book, and it uh, begins with a Bene Gesserit planet which is being converted into another Dune. And goes from there. Thank you very much, Frank Herbert, for sharing your thoughts on Dune, your writings, and sharing your thoughts on our world with Walden Books. Uh, we wish you the best of luck with the motion picture, Dune, soon to be released and look forward to Chapter House, Dune. We hope you've enjoyed getting to know Frank Herbert a little more closely. Watch for Dune, the motion picture from Universal and Dino De Laurentiis. And enjoy all of Frank Herbert's books available in Walden Bookstores. We want to invite you to send us your comments and suggestions for other programs you'd like to hear. In return for writing us, we'll send you our latest catalog listing all of our materials. Send your comments to Listen and Learn, Post Office Box 1084, Stamford, Connecticut, 06904. Thanks for listening. We'd be happy to listen to you, too. It was also a different guy, thank God, so I didn't have to get into a confrontation, but... You you were ready with your smacking hand. <laughs> I, I, I was I was ready to call a worm. That's what I was ready for. Wow! Activate the thumper. Get a get a, a few maker hooks ready and. Yeah, and go to town on that hardware store. Your still suit is not fitted desert fashion. 
<laughs> no, my still suit is fitted Minnesota fashion. Oh, <laughs> <yeah>. Crisscross. <laughs> oh, man.